Today, on this episode of Stories from the Nosebleeds, we take a look at the Detroit Red Wings and Colorado Avalanche rivalry. This personal, passionate, pulverizing, and pugilistic rivalry, which from 1995 to 2002 burned hotter than nearly any other rivalry in all of sports, gave us a nice tidbit of what we could see in the future to come in hockey. Ooh, welcome to Stories from the Nosebleeds. We're back for another fun time today. It's our number one episode. We're going to do a great one. We're going to have a lot of fun. Jesse Drebbett sitting across from me looking beautiful as ever in that Rams hat. Oh, by God. Thank you, Levs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just trying to show, just trying to show my support for the team, you know? Well, I mean, you got to do that. You got to do that. Nobody else is going to do it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We have like exactly 70 fans. Yeah, exactly. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> I think everyone's going to the Chargers now, so. That's fair. That's Why fair. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that third voice you're hearing is our friend to the right of us here is Tagger Jacob. How we doing, fella? Oh, can't complain. Nope. Yeah. It's freaking cold as hell outside, though. It is so cold. Like, what are we, like minus 30 right now? It is minus 28. Feels like minus 38 in energy here. It is nasty. Fuck me. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was going to see if you guys wanted to do some ODR later on, but uh, I think that's out of the question now. Definitely out of the question. Yeah, Absolutely. that's not happening. But, you know, I did wear the vintage Expos jersey today. I wanted to feel warm. So I was going to say. It looks I, good. I got the powder blue going. I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Larry, Larry Walker? Larry Walker. Yeah. yeah, you got to, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, so, I mean, just looking at those powder blues and just thinking of all the great powder blue jerseys that are kicking around in the sports world, which one's the best? Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins Winter Classic. Um, sounds a little biased. <laughs> I think it is, yeah, being, being the Pittsburgh native that you are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. A, I wish. I wish. <laughs> you know what? If I, if I had a vote, I'm going to go with the – Minnesota Twins. Oh, that is a nice powder blue. That is a good one, yeah. I like those ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, I'll go back to the Chargers. I think it's the San Diego Chargers, man. Those 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 ones. Those are great jerseys. They are great jerseys. The Lance Allworth, LaDainian Tomlinson days. I'll take take that jersey over anything. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Awesome. So, shall we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. So, today we're going to take a look at the uh, Detroit Red Wings-Colorado Avalanche rivalry from 1995 to 2002, where... Um, violence, violence ruled the day. Violence I, galore. Know, yeah, these guys, um, they were out for blood. Uh, debts needed to be paid. Retribution needed to be doled out. Revenge needed to happen. And we got to watch the evolution of uh, the clutch and grab era into a little bit more of a freewheeling era through the lens of this rivalry, um, where uh, blood and guts turned into. Uh, gorgeous goals and um, some of the best hockey that anyone got to see through that era. Um, but without further ado, I think we got to have our resident uh, Detroit Red Wings ex- expert, uh, Jesse. Uh, why don't you let us know about some of the guys we need to pay attention to today? We're going to start with the captain, the franchise, Steve Yeiserman. At this point in time, you couldn't think of a better guy to lead your hockey team. He could score, set up guys from anywhere, and was the ultimate team player. The former 1983-84 All-Rookie Team member and 1988-89 Ted Lindsay Award winner had 481 goals, 679 assists, and 1,160 points in his first 12 seasons. I'll ride with that any days. Or, sorry, any day. Apologies to Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, and Mark Messier. I'm going to follow Steve Yeiserman. That's fair. I mean, um, you know, before Sidney Crosby, uh, Steve Eisman was the youngest captain in league history. I believe they made him the captain at 19 years old. Uh, yes. Um, you know, just a, a, a true cornerstone 
of uh, a franchise, someone that you can really build a champion around. Yeah, and uh, if you want to compare him to anybody in today's game, I guess a lot of people would compare him to Jonathan Taves. Absolutely. Intensity, leadership, it, it's all there. Anything well, to get the job done. Anything to get the job done. Yep. And it definitely showed. All right, who, do, who next do you got there on that uh, Detroit roster that we got to pay attention to? His offensive skill was terrifying for defenders, especially one-on-one. The former fourth-round pick and future Hall of Famer would rack up 173 goals, 249 assists, and 422 points in his first five seasons as a member of the Red Wings, while also winning the Ted Lindsay Award and Hart Trophy during the 1993-94 season. It might have been Yasmin's team at the time, but Fedorov was the straw that stirred the drink in Detroit's offense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, for a period of time, there was nobody in the league faster than him. It is him and Pavel Burry, really. Uh, but nobody had style like Sergei Fedorov. Those white skates, oh, man, they popped. The Nikes, the Nike Apollos, buddy. Those, yes. Those were where it's at. So you don't see that very often. Guy confident enough to just skate around in white skates. Oh, it just doesn't happen. You, no. you can't do it, right? Like, style of the game dictates that you have black skates with a little bit of accents to them tops. Uh, this guy was going out there with some um, unique style, and I don't think that you'd find a kid that grew up in the 90s watching hockey that could not tell you exactly what Fedorov looked like on the ice. It was Yazerman's team, but everything came around Fedorov, and he could just turn it on whenever he damn well felt like it. Well, I mean, if we're uh, we're looking to other Russians on the team, there, there's another guy that really stands out. Yeah, uh, Igor Larionov. Although he didn't join the Red Wings until the 95-96 campaign, Larionov brought with him a modest six-season career, three of which he spent in Vancouver from 1989 to 1992. After leaving the Canucks, he would join the San Jose Sharks in 1993, where he logged 18 goals with 38 assists for 56 points that year, finishing tied for ninth in all-star voting with Marc Messier and Ron Francis. Of those 296 points that he brought with Detroit, 201 of them were assists. So he's actually a pretty good setup man in Detroit's offense. Yeah, Larionov was one of those legends from the Soviet system that uh, couldn't find a way to, to fit into Vancouver, couldn't find a way to fit into San Jose. But they gets to uh, Detroit where they have a system that is um, more set up to the Soviet system. And as they added more Russian players, uh, you know, like Konstantinov, like Slava Kozlov, um, it became an even more wide-open system of that five-man unit, um, you know, F1, F2, F3, as opposed to center, left wing, right wing. Um, and it developed into some of the best hockey that, as North Americans, we ever got to see. Absolutely. Um, but it, you can't talk about this Detroit team without talking about the, the goaltending carousal that somehow led to so many wins. The thing with uh, Detroit was, in their seven-year rivalry with Colorado, Detroit would use a rotation of goalies over the years. I'm going to start off by talk 394 season where he would post a 23-8-5 record with a .895 save percentage, 2.86 goals against average, and two shutouts. He would improve on those numbers the following season, going 14-5-0 for a .917 save percentage, 2.26 goals against average, and one shutout. I got to say, out of all the goalies that came through the Detroit system over the years, I would have to say Chris Osgood is probably my favorite goalie. Really? Yeah, I would oh, have God. to say so. To me, it's between him and Dan Cloutier, who's got the worst style in league history. Uh, yeah, I mean... Even Arter Serbe looked better than that. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> come on now. He wasn't a fluid-looking goalie. Like, no. It all looked forced. Yeah. Who, Osgood? Osgood, yeah. yeah. It might have been forced, but I mean... God. I'm not saying he wasn't good. I'm, I mean, I'm the, saying that he wasn't great. <laughs> 
I mean, listen, if you can win a cup one year and then come back ten years later, I mean, you're pretty pretty freaking good. I don't know. I, I'm standing by that it, it was the team in front of him and that the other two goalies that were involved were much, much better players. No, you're the fan. You get to pick who you like the best. Hey. I'm just saying that you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> Who else came through the system? Uh, after posting 248 wins and winning a Stanley Cup championship in 11 seasons with the Calgary Flames, Mike Vernon, arri- Mike Vernon arrived in Detroit for the 94-95 season. With the Red Wings looking to bring in an experienced championship goaltender, he would take over for Osgood that year as the starter, going 19-6-4 through 30 starts in the strike-shortened season. In his three seasons with Detroit, Vernon would go 53-24-14 with a .898 save percentage and a 2.40 goals against average. After the departures of Osgood and Vernon, the Red Wings hit the jackpot when... Oh, sorry. I, there, there's not much more to say about Mike Vernon. You proved me wrong almost immediately. That 898 save percentage is not exactly godly. <laughs> I don't know it isn't, but I mean, you might have been a small guy, but man, could he throw him? Oh, he's a mean zombie. <laughs> he was, I actually have a... Uh, an autographed uh, Mike Vernon picture at home from the 90-91 season when nice. he stopped into the casino and said hi to my dad. That's one night. sweet, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah the benefits of uh, living in the Calgary area for us. Hey, growing up, like you get to run into some of those guys every once in a while, and it's uh, it's refreshing to see how human they are. You know, they treat you like a person, and not all of them for sure. I but... was going to say I don't know. I've worked a couple casino shifts, uh, doing some volunteering and stuff like that, and. Uh... Mr. Uh, Theo Fleury is maybe not the most personable guy. No, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I've actually heard different stories about Theo. I hear he's actually very approachable, very nice guy. Well, I, I think maybe in the last few years he's probably kind of like gotten much better. But, I mean, let's remember for a period of time, like he's not allowed at MSG, right? You know, like he, there was definitely a period of time where he, he was not exactly the most fun to be around. I think understandably so. But uh, it was also an in every couple of seasons, and it worked to an extent. Well, S- I, some years they would come out on top; other years they wouldn't come out on top. I, I think. Well, I mean, that happens every year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either you win or you don't, you know. But um, I'm just saying, though, for like a rotation of goalies, they actually did pretty good. I, oh, absolutely. I think that that's because they couldn't like latch on to any one guy. Like until they get Hashik, you get a lot of one B guys, right? You know, Mike Vernon's past the stage in his career where he's the workhorse, going to win you a bunch of games. Chris Osgood was never that guy. Um, he was going to win you some, but it, you, the team in front of him was going to win more games. And when you got Dominic Hasek, you got a guy, even though he was later in his career, could still win you games, could still get you shutouts with that unique style that I, I, I hope we never see again because I'm pretty sure – that he didn't understand angles of how hockey worked. He just <laughs> threw his body in the way. But he also is um, arguably, and for my money, probably the best goalie to ever play the game, you know, at this point in time. Um, and you would get a lot of people that would actually back up that statement. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And rightfully so. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can't have a great back line like that, uh, even with the cycling through the different guys. Um without uh, having someone in front that can, you know, kind of take care of business. And they had one of those guys. They did. Nicholas Lidstrom. Listen, defensemen are like quarterbacks in hockey. You need to see the ice like a chessboard while also making quick and smart decisions at 20 kilometers an hour. Lidstrom was the absolute best at it. The 53rd overall pick in the 1989 NHL draft would tally 38 goals, 145 assists for 
183 points during the first four seasons of his career, while also nabbing a 1991-1992 all-rookie team honor in the process. If you try to go one-on-one, two-on-one, five-on-one against Nick Lidstrom, chances are nine times out of ten you're going to lose that battle. There was the odd time where people got past him, but more often than not you couldn't that's just hockey, though, right? Yeah. You know, you're, you're not going to win every single battle, but those guys that always stand out are the ones that win a very high percentage. Uh, he's the best defenseman to ever play in the NHL. Be- better than Bobby Orr? Bobby Orr's career is too short. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, if it's it, it's Bobby Orr, Nick Lidstrom, those are the only two guys involved in the conversation. And fact of the matter is Lidstrom played forever, and he played forever at the highest level, always being that guy that was tough to beat. For me, dollars to donuts, it's Nick Lidstrom. Yeah, he could set up guys. I see Nick Lidstrom as one of the uh, pioneers of the two-way defenseman. Yes. Right? You know, a, a guy that uh, pitched in on the front but also was complete lockdown on the back end. I think Drew Doughty, right, you know, in today's game as being someone that when he's at the peak of his game is, is similar to Nick Lidstrom but isn't there. He's, nobody in today's game is Nick Lidstrom. And probably never will be ever again. Uh, you know what? We might see another one in our lifetime. I hope. Never say never. Yeah, uh, you know, I hope to, right? You know, um, I don't hope to. You want to see those sort of <laughs> sorts of athletes, though, right? Yeah. Um, those guys that stand out and you know, make you go, "Wow, we're never going to see that again." And you know, sure enough, somewhere down the road, so we'll see it in some capacity. Yeah, I, I was think. really hoping uh, Rasmus Dalin, uh, Dalin, sorry, would be that guy. Um, you know, Kale McCarr is maybe a little bit too offensive-minded yep. to be that guy, but he's going to be the Canadian hallmark, I think, for a while. But Rasmus Dahlin, Victor Hedman's another guy. But again, he, he's not Nick Lidstrom. Not, none of these guys are Nick Lidstrom. It's, it's wild what he could do and, and how good he was. He was the most dangerous, I would say, probably on the power play. Like, that shot of his, very accurate. He knew when to shoot low. He knew when to shoot high. And he knew the Joe. And he knew the joke. He bounced boards off, like, off so, the backboards. So did all those Detroit defensemen. Like oh. The boards were their advantage. Yep. Like that yellow trim on the bottom. Man, they they knew every which angle that puck was going to go. So they knew all the soft spots. They knew all the spots where and just how it was going to bounce off a certain point in the boards. They knew that building. Yeah. And I mean, before you move along to uh, this last set of players, I know you got uh, one more I got highlighted up here that uh, – you should probably uh, take a look at and uh, tell us a little bit about that guy. Uh, Brendan Shanahan, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it took you this long to get to him. I mean, that's how good Detroit was, though, back in the day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> There's some big names, that's you, for sure. You'd have to go through four or five guys before you got to Brendan Shanahan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after spending four seasons in New Jersey, four seasons in St. Louis, and one season in Hartford, Shanahan joined the Red Wings in 1996-97, where he would have his best season as a pro since the 93-94 season as a member of the St. Louis Blues. Shanahan finished 96-97 with 47 goals and 41 assists for for 88 points. The perfect combination of playmaking ability and physicality, Shanahan thrived in Detroit right away, a place he would call home for nine seasons before heading to the New York Rangers in 2006. Do you guys do you guys know the story of how he got to Detroit? I don't know. From Hartford to Detroit? Well, from or? St. Louis to Hartford. Oh, from St. Louis to Hartford. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, let's push some buttons. All right. Yeah. Yeah. He was a member of the St. Louis Blues. Um, was looking like a real good up and comer, tough, gritty. Got his way into league by fighting. Um, was starting to show offensive punch. Looked real good. Looked like St. Louis had a real nice prospect. Everybody loved him. Was going to be a part of the team for years. Um, and then he fucked his teammate's wife. 
<laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Which, which, which teammate? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. It must have been somebody decently uh, respected around the room. Well, no, he's team. also pretty young, so it's I one guess. of those things where it's like, okay, well, time for you to learn a lesson. Off you go to Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> well, he spent a year there, then he ends up in you know one of the greatest uh, hockey cities in the world in Detroit and uh, becomes a part of uh, the only reason they weren't a dynasty was the Colorado Avalanche, so. So, in Shanahan's case, being a sinner actually paid off. Yeah, well, and he married her. So, they, hey. she broke up with, with her husband, and uh, he ended up marrying her and was, is, as far as I can tell, still with her today. So, you know, as far as, like, uh, in proprieties go, at least he acted like an adult about it afterwards. I'll give him that much. So, uh, he also took his ass kicking. That came from that. Um, there was lots of uh, scuttlebutt as I was looking that one up. Um, he uh, took quite an ass kicking, and apparently he, he took it. He understood what was coming and uh, took it like a man. So I'm surprised uh, Ryan Smith didn't get to her first before Brendan Shanahan Because <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories about Ryan Smith as well. Uh, uh, Captain Canada. <laughs> Captain Canada. Making us proud, Ryan. <laughs> you and your greasy mullet. Uh. Well, we can't go anywhere uh, forward with this until we talk about the grind line. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've put over the offensive talent of the Red Wings, or I put them over for a while now, but I can't go on without mentioning the Smash Mouth, Pack of Lunch style players that they had. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to start with Kurt Maltby. Kurt Maltby joined the Red Wings midway past the 95-96 season after going back and forth from the AHL's Cape Breton Oilers to the NHL with the Edmonton Oilers. Maltby was the agitator and checking forward playing the left wing. So with Maltby, would you compare him to maybe like a Matthew Kachuk in today's game? Maybe he's the same size. Maybe not as much of a trash talker as Matthew Kachuk. No, he's nowhere near as skilled as Matthew Kachuk. I didn't say skilled. I was just saying like... <laughs> in terms of stirring shit up. Oh, yeah. no. Uh, Antoine Roussel. Antoine Roussel. Or... Um... May see Tom Wilson's too good too. Like the thing is, is you gotta compare him to um, you know third, fourth line grinders because that's what he was. Um, well, he, he was the best at it. You know that that line that you're about to talk about. Those those guys are hands down the best at it. Um, you know they got paid in Detroit because of how good they were at it. But when you're comparing them, he's not Brad Marchand. He's not Matthew Kachuk. You know, those guys are miles above where Kurt Malkmy was. But Anton Roussel, for sure. That's or Michael Raffle. But didn't Matthew start out on the third line in Calgary? Kinda of like as in that 18, lower inch line. As an eighteen year old. Yeah. Kirk Malkmy was the fourth line of the Detroit Red Wings for seven years. Eight years. Okay. He yeah. never moved up. Yeah. Right? Like that that's the thing about this line is they were so good at what they did, they got plenty of minutes. They didn't move up the, the depth chart. You know, they just earned minutes on their own. But also, Mopey couldn't move up because of all the skill players in front of him. Well, yeah, okay, yeah, especially when you're looking at, like, 2002 when so the he third had... winger in front of him is Brett Hall. Like, okay, cool, uh, thanks for bringing me along for the ride, guys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know, like, I, I always liked Mopey. You know, whenever you needed a goal out of him, he would actually get it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a... I do like uh, no, no, I, I I agree with you, but maybe more of a Brandon Prust or um, uh, like a Lance Boma or you know like to to name some Calgary Flames players that kind of had a similar type of role to what Kirk Malpe provided. Um, 
but he could move up the lineup. You know, to your point, he um, both him and Darren McCarty did a lot of uh, moving up and down the lineup um, when injuries occurred and filled in those roles admirably. Fair enough. Uh, I'll move on to uh, another one of my favorite Red Wings, uh, Chris Draper. Chris Draper started out in Winnipeg in 1990 where he spent three seasons but only played in 20 games for the Jets. Did you guys ever hear the story of how Chris Draper got traded? No. No. So in so Chris Draper was traded to Detroit in 1993 in exchange for the steep price of $1. Come on. He was traded for $1. And a waiver pick or just $1? The $1 man would go on to be the Red Wings' third and fourth line center for 14 seasons in Detroit. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> None of which you can answer. But like, <laughs> Is this like a future considerations type deal where it's like, hey. No, 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 no. You could buy players uh, back then. So like you, you'd send cash considerations is what no, they no, call I, it now. No, I, no, I, I know that. What I mean is like did they give him such a deal like to give a player for a dollar is like please take him. Get him the fuck out of here. Winnipeg must have just needed the roster spot for somebody. That seems like such a strange I mean, in junior, you they hear guys... They couldn't have got 50 bucks for him? Like, well, in junior... A couple Dairy Queen coupons? Like, fuck. I know, right? You can get more than a dollar. In junior, you hear guys getting traded for, like, laundry machines. Like, that happened... Yeah, but a laundry machine's worth more than a dollar. I, I know, I know. But, like, <laughs> it's still... Like, you're still getting traded for a material thing. <laughs> I can't imagine what it feels like to get traded for a dollar. Well, maybe that's why he came out and actually uh, proved them all wrong. I He sure did. Like, that, the guy had a career once he got to Detroit. No, that was straight up Chris Draper for a dollar. <laughs> Unreal. So if you put, like, Chris Draper in a vending machine, you, if you had, like, change on you, you I could still put need him another in. quarter. B4. <laughs> <laughs> Just hit B4. I still need another quarter. <laughs> Brock. <laughs> That's a cool story, though. That's awesome. Uh, Joe Cooker. Cooker? Kosher, kosher. Co- Joe Kush, Kosher. Kosher, yeah. Kosher. It's one of those weird... Uh, it's not kosher. Eastern European names. <laughs> K-O-C-U-R, right? K-O-C-U-R. Yeah, yeah, kosher. Joe Kosher was selected in the 1983 NHL draft by the Red Wings, where he would spend his first six seasons before being shipped off to the New York Rangers during the 1990-91 season. Honestly, it's sorry, just to kind of cut in here real quick. Crime in Sports does an episode on this guy, and he's wild. Yeah. You should go check it out. Well, I mean, the guy was uh, linemates with Bobby Probert, so yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. After New York, he would find his way to Vancouver for a cup of coffee before finishing his final three seasons back in Detroit. And along with Bobby Probert, they were known as the Bruise Brothers, a nasty tag team of enforcers and fighters. Uh, Taking uh, Joe uh, Kosher's place was uh, the legendary Darren McCarty. Oh, yeah, oh, I, yeah. yeah, I said legendary, oh, yeah. Darren McCarty. Give me heavy metal and cocaine, boys. Let's fire this thing up. Let's take a piss in the casino parking lot. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Darren McCarty was selected by Detroit 46 overall in the 1992 NHL draft. 46 overall. Wow. That seems oddly high based on what we know of him now as the type of player he became. Well, that's why he's legendary. He's yeah. the 46 pick. But when you start watching him, man, like some of the stuff, like when he actually scores goals. Oh, he, he wasn't a bad player. It's crazy how much skill he had for someone that like literally looks like he's the human version of a hacksaw. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting comparison. <laughs> oh, man, his face has so many sharp angles on it. <laughs> the, Bur- the Burnaby BC product would join the Red Wings during the 1993-94 season, taking over the right wing spot after the departure of Co- Kosher three seasons prior. 
and he had an immediate impact and terrifying chemistry with Mulpey and Draper. We're going to hear a lot about Darren McCarty as we go on through this episode. All, all three of these guys, man. They're uh, the catalyst for 50% of this. Oh, uh, yeah. If not more. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're a big part of uh, the story we're about to tell because, let's be honest, they're, they're the best grinders to ever. How to pronounce that. Nope. I'm not even going to attempt nope. to. Not even. Nope. And the AHL's... <laughs> Adrian Adriadak Red Wings. Adriandak, like the chair. Adriandak, yeah, Red Wings. Like the chair, as if that's common knowledge. <laughs> Adriandak chairs. I have no idea what that is. You know the like lean back chairs. They're like. Are they like rocking chairs? Or... No, 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 no. Like you see them in the summer, um, and they're like. Oh yeah. Partially yeah. lean back. They're made the, out of wood. Like those real low ones. Yeah. Oh okay. I yeah. didn't know the name from. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Sorry. Learning something new today. Wow. I was like, you, you dropped that. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> this reference probably won't make sense to other people, too. <laughs> was that uh, your Owen Wilson impression? Wow. Wow. It, came across, it sounded like Owen Wilson for a second. Good, good. We're working on it. Standing at the front of the net was Holmstrom's calling card, though, and he was pretty damn good at it. That's all you had to do was put him in front of the goalie. He'd get a tip. Fight one on one with another defender. I I loved his playing style. He had unbelievable body control. Uh, I was mentioning to you guys in the pre production meeting today. There was a goal that he scores during this that uh, he's horizontal to the ice. He's off of his skates. He somehow has enough stick control to get his stick in the way of a shot that's coming from the point off a of Chris Chelios bomb. It's not just a fucking muffin in on the way. And he manages to tip it top shelf. It's unbelievable what that guy could do. Um, once he got to the front of the net, he, you were going to have trouble moving him. Um, his his top-end talent fit in well. Uh, he could play in the top six or the bottom six. He was just everywhere for this Detroit team. Razor sharp hand-eye coordination like you were talking about. Like a Lidstrom shot comes up high, he'll, he'll get a stick on it. Yeah. Comes low, he'll put the stick on the ground. The puck will go up. Yeah. It's a beautiful goal. Joe Pavelski with more beef. Uh, maybe not as skilled as Joe Pavelski, though. Yeah, you're you're right, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> all right. Gonna, yeah. We'll leave her there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, 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 we've done now. We've talked about Detroit. Jesse's had his time to shine. Um, you know. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. So we got to move on. We got to move on to. I, uh, uh, sorry, I'll quit hogging the spotlight. <laughs> I guess we have to talk about the other team. We do have to talk about the other team. And if we're going to talk about the Colorado Avalanche, we got to talk about how they got to Colorado in the first place. So, Tag, why don't you bring us into uh, the Quebec Nordiques? Well, so, I mean, originally the Quebec Nordiques were part of the World Hockey Association, uh, part of their original teams, which formed in 1972. Originally, the team was awarded to San Francisco and called the Sharks, which is kind of convenient that the uh, San Jose would uh, take on that name down the road. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> but promptly moved to Quebec City due to financial and arena conflicts. While in their seven seasons in the WHA, they won the Avco World Trophy once in 1977 before their move to the NHL in 1979. They made the postseason seven consecutive years after entering the NHL, but began to decline, leading them to being last in their division from 1987 through 1992. The worst of which was 1989 and 90, where they only won 12 games. That's got to be hard to be a fan for that. Yeah. Especially in that market, too, where the fans are demanding wins year after year after year after year. They're already Canadians fans. you got to steal them. Uh, Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And because of these poor outings, they got three straight first-round picks, all of which turned into uh, some fantastic players. They were Matt Sundin, 
Owen Nolan and Eric Lindros. Uh, at this time, obviously, there was a lot of controversy with uh, Eric Lindros. He made it quite clear that he didn't want to play for the Nordiques, which created a holdout that lasted over a year before a trade that was made June 30th, 1992. He spent that year playing for the Canadian national team. Uh, at the time, uh, amateurs uh, were the only ones allowed to play in the Olympics, so uh, teams would have their own national team, generally made up of college players or junior age players that were kind of in the middle, not quite ready for the pros, but too old for junior or too skilled for junior and he ended up playing that year on the Canadian national team um you know what I probably should have looked this up before but I'm pretty sure he might have played with Paul Korea that year hmm. might have been a little too early for him though in 1992 yeah but I mean anyways but either way yeah th- th- this trade uh in hindsight has got to be probably one of the most one-sided trades of all time mm. uh he was traded to the Philadelphia Flyers in a trade that would basically send the Flyers Eric Lindros and the Nordiques received Peter Forsberg, Steve Duchesne, Kerry Huffman, Mike Ricci, Ricci, San Jose's most eligible bachelor, <laughs> Ron Hextall, Chris Simon, and two more first-round picks. There's a lot of NHL games in that trade, man. Uh, a Quebec, lot of experience. You're right. Quebec gets the... They the, got a lot of value there. They did. Uh, you know, Chris Simon's a mean, mean man, and he also was highly skilled. He could play hockey. He wasn't just uh, he wasn't just an enforcer. And was a very emphatic part of the 03-04 Flames uh, Cup run. Yeah. Mike Ricci was a hell of a hockey player. He really carved out his career more so down in San Jose than he did with Quebec. But still, uh, when he was there, he made an impact. Obviously, Peter Forsberg. Um, and I'll get to him. I, we, we, we will get to him, but good luck naming a better hockey player from Sweden than him. Yeah. I mean, I'm biased. I'm going to say Nick Lidstrom, number one. Ah, you eye roll. Give me a postage stamp. Oh, wait. <laughs> so, I mean, the first season back after the trade, 1992-93, they were back in the playoffs and heading in the right direction. Well, the on-ice success was relatively common for the Nordiques throughout uh, their tenure there in uh, Quebec City. Sorry, just uh, I just want to quickly mention that Matt Sundin also was traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs in a deal that brought them Wendell Clark. Yep. That's right. But uh, while they were doing pretty decent on the ice, they were struggling financially due to being one of the uh, smallest demographics in the NHL. It's one of the smallest markets out there. Yeah, their stadium held 4,000 seats less than uh, the next uh, smallest stadium in the NHL at the time. Yeah, I think the area com- like comparable was like, you know, like 750,000 people, which it's 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 tough to keep the market going, uh, especially coming off bad years. You don't have that uh, and a lot of like consecutive bad years. Exactly, you don't have that cushion of people coming and coming to the gates. Um, you know, there wasn't the social media back then. It literally was bums and seats, people through the gates. It's, it's hard to keep that going. And regardless of how good the uh, team is, after that, you've still got to work your fan base back up, and they just weren't able to. From Quebec's provincial government, along with a new publicly funded arena, the bailout fell through. Thus, the sale of the team became Albert's only option. In May 1995, Comsat Entertainment Group, who owned the Denver Nuggets at the time, agreed to purchase the team. When the team was purchased, the team was briefly called the Rocky Mountain Extreme. They which should have they, stayed that they way. Absolutely they should have stayed. stayed. That. that was going to be my main point of this. <laughs> the Avalanche is terrible compared to the Rocky Mountain Extreme. Do you ever yeah. see the like the 
possible logos for that and stuff oh, like that. that is so 90s it was awesome oh. <laughs> I, I saw the i actually saw the nordiques logo before they moved to denver actually what it was going to look like in 1995 i don't know if you guys saw that or not i've never seen that no okay uh, i'm gonna see if i could bring it up he'll uh he's gonna put it up on our social media as part of the package for today's game perfect perfect so i mean due to the layout of the conferences without this relocation these two teams that we're talking about today would have had a hard time meeting in the playoffs Meaning we likely wouldn't have had this story to tell. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, honestly, if uh, if that Quebec team had kept coming out of the East and Detroit keeps coming out of the West, we could have had a uh, you know Cavaliers, Golden State Warriors esque you know four years in a row of just bloodbath. Dallas Cowboys, Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah, kinda, you yeah. know, Stanley Cup Finals. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But either way, we definitely got a good story, regardless. For sure. Yeah. So moving along, we're going to start uh, going through some of the key players for Colorado here. Uh, first one up, got to be one of the more obvious ones, Patrick Waugh. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> so he was originally drafted in the third round, 51st overall in 1984 by the Montreal Canadiens, uh, which he actually grew up a Nordiques fan, conveniently enough. Huh. So he was not so keen on playing for his interprovincial rivals, per se. Wow. In 1986, he took over the starting job from an injured Steve Penny, played 47 games, and secured the starting job for the playoffs, where he took the team to an unexpected Stanley Cup win and won the Conn Smythe at just 20 years old, the youngest ever. Here's where the root of Waugh's hatred for the Red Wings likely stems from. On December 2nd, 1995, Waugh was in net against the Red Wings in an 11-1 loss in which he was left in for nine goals on 26 shots, there was times when the crowd was mocking him for just basic routine saves. He was literally giving waves to the crowd back, trying to mock him back the best he could. The Montreal cheer, man. Yeah. It's like yeah, the, the Brooklyn salute. Those, yeah. those fans are ruthless in Montreal. They are, but they're great. I love them. <laughs> but uh, when he was finally pulled from the game, he stormed down the bench directly to Canadian's president. They only had that. The low glass there. So and, like, and the fact that you wouldn't see this anymore. You're no, not going to see the GM, the president, the hockey operations guy. They're not sitting right behind the bench anymore. They're sitting up in a press box. There's no way that this would ever happen. He's not sitting down there with the No, the no, comment. definitely could have. He, <laughs> he probably wanted to. Man, that game was on the other – I think I watched it like three weeks ago. Man, I never get tired of that. I think I had to watch it twice, actually. And it showed it in its full entirety, too. Like, the whole two hours. I think I watched it twice. You're sick. I, I, I watched 22 <laughs> goals that night. It was awesome. But either way, he made his way down the bench and uh, right to Canadian's president, Ronald Corey, and said, exactly for this, quotations, it's my last game in Montreal. Bold. Well, ah, he was right. He was exactly right. <laughs> this would be, in fact, his last game in Montreal. Just four days later, he, alongside longtime captain Mike Keane, were traded to the Colorado Avalanche in exchange for Jocelyn Thibault, Mar- Martin Ruchinski, and Andre Kovalenko. I mean, honestly, a pretty even trade uh, outside of the best goalie uh, to play the game at the time, uh, moving teams. <clears throat> uh, Montreal did not get enough in return for Mike Keane and Patrick Waugh. Hell no. God, no. <laughs> and I mean, the guy, he was a Hall of Famer as of 2004, four-time Stanley Cup winner, three-time Conn Smythe winner, three-time Vesna winner, four-time first-team All-Star, the guy's 
one of the best goalies of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. He, he is. But you, you keep going, I'm and saying, I'm going to take I got a, I got a few more things to talk yeah. about here with Patrick Waugh. So, I mean, he, he holds a handful of records, too. Uh, most playoff wins by a goalie at 247. That's third of all players ever, not just goalies. Wow. Most playoff wins, 151. First goalie to play 1,000 games. First goalie to win 500 games. And most Conn Smythe wins with three. Uh, 86, 93, and 2001. Yes, sir. Nice. I love me some Burnaby Joe. Burnaby Joe. Burnaby Joe. Joe Sacker. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly where I'm going to next. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. I thought you were just naming like a liquor brand that no, you're promoting. I did also find, by the way, that he was not on the 2002 Olympic team, and my mind blew up. I have no idea why, and I need to know, but it was Curtis Joseph, Ed Belfour, and uh, Martin Brodeur. Oh, yeah, that's... That's a pretty nasty trio, too. Yeah, I know, but how do you take Ed Belfour but not Patrick Waugh? He must have been hurt, right? He's got to have been. Pat? Yeah. I mean, maybe. But, I mean, I'll, I'll take a Ed Belfour mugshot over Patrick Waugh. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Either way, we're going to move along to the captain, Joe Sackick. He was drafted 15th overall by the Quebec Nordiques in 1987. In his rookie season, he actually wore number 88, which, uh, because at the time, his uh, favored number 19 was being worn by teammate Alan Cote. Uh, He registered 62 points in 70 games. In 1989-90, he was able to switch his number because Cote retired. Uh, That season, he recorded 102 points, which was good enough for ninth in league scoring. 92-93, 92-93, Joe was named the sole captain of the franchise after sharing the role with pre- the previous season with Steve Finn. Uh, I mean, this guy as well, multi-time Stanley Cup winner, 2001 Hart Trophy winner, um, 2001 he won the Lester B. Pearson, which is now the Ted Lindsay Award. Mm-hmm. Um, 2001 he also won the Lady Bing. Like, first team All-Star, 2001, 2002, 2004. Olympic MVP in 2002, like the guy was fantastic, and again, another Hall of Famer inducted in 2012. See, that's the one guy on Colorado I actually respected was Joe Sackick, because he was like pure class, you know, had arguably the greatest wrist shot the game has ever seen. Uh, Some of the wrist shots I've seen from Joe Sackick are just unbelievable, like the release and how quick the puck got into the back of the net was just something to watch. I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a kid that grew up um, through the age of synergies when they first started coming out mm-hmm. that didn't have a sacket curve. Mm-hmm. That was That's the one. It's five and a half lie. It's, everybody uses it, even now. Call it a Crosby or whatever. But like, it's, it's the same shit. It's a sacket Before curve. Before Sid, it was Joe. It's a sacket curve. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's, get, let's get that straight. Let's get that straight. <laughs> and you're the Pittsburgh fan. I'm surprised you didn't no, find no, dude, your guy. Sackick, or Sackick, your guy. Sackick is, is um, unbelievable. Yes. Um, he's turned into a great management level guy as well. Um, the only negative thing that I can think about him is when he messed up his hand in a snowblower. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, that happened uh, like 07, 08 maybe? Yeah, was, I can't remember if it was near the end of his career or after he had retired. It was because I was working at, Chry- at uh, Chrysler at the time and uh, we 
I remember the day that story came out. Yeah. <laughs> we we kind of laughed, but we also felt kind of bad because it was Joe. It's it, Joe Sackett. Why yeah. did this ha- have to happen to such a nice guy? Exactly. Like, come yeah. on. Um, but he, I, he's definitely an Olympic gold medalist. I know that for sure. He's part of the O2 team. I was going to say, he's got a handful of records here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of only four players to win the Cup and Hart Trophy in the same season. Mm-hmm. He's part of that triple gold club. He's the he's first in Avalanche Nordiques franchise goals, assists, points, and games played. And he's also got the record for most playoff overtime goals. Really? Yeah. Nice. Eight. Eight in a single playoff run. So not only is he a nice guy, but he's also clutch. Oh, God, is he ever. Yes. <laughs> that would Joe, be an understatement. There, I mean, Joe Sackick's a big part of why Colorado was so dominant. Detroit had Steve Eisman, cornerstone of the franchise. Colorado had Joe Sackick. Both 19s, both captains, both give you exactly the same thing um, in regards to leadership. They're, they're maybe not the the loudest guy in the room but when they're speaking they didn't have to be you know exactly when they're speaking everybody's listening they do their speaking on the ice <clears throat> they follow there's people something follow. about a, uh, a quiet leadership that uh, you know, only only certain people possess that sort of power yeah i do not <laughs> no no there's like i said yeah just certain... looking at you you do not give off no, that no, look. No, i don't give off that vibe <laughs> no oh weird sorry man all right, well, moving along here to uh, one Swedish player we talked about a little bit earlier, Peter Forsberg. He was drafted sixth overall by the Philadelphia Flyers in 1991, which at the time was seen as a reach since he was projected as a late first, early second round player, and it was quite heavily criticized by the Philadelphia media. But surprise, surprise, it's Philadelphia. They're the worst. Hey, come on now. The worst. It's Philadelphia. I, I don't need to say anything more than that right there. They're hucking <laughs> batteries. Yeah, exactly. Puking on kids. Yeah, pretty much. And as mentioned earlier, he came over to the Nordiques as part of the 1992 Eric Lindros trade. Um, during all of this and up until 1994, Forsberg actually stayed and played at home in Sweden with Moto. Due to the league lockout in 1995, his NHL debut was delayed until January, in which he took on the team who originally drafted him, the Philadelphia Flyers, with the still at the time Quebec Nordiques. In 1995, he scored 50 points in just 47 games, which led him to win the Calder Memorial Trophy for Rookie of the Year. So, I mean, to go along with those awards, he once again, multi-time Stanley Cup Trophy winner, uh, All-Star First Team three times, Art Ross winner once, Hart Trophy once, inducted to the Hall of Fame in 2014. Has his own postage stamp. Does he? He does. In Sweden, I assume? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it's like I don't think I've seen those. Uh, it's uh, he was it to win their first World Juniors? Uh, the shootout goal where he goes on the uh, the big one hand dra- toe drag way outside. So what he does is he comes in on the goalie, he fakes to his right, fakes the shot, lets his body drift across, and then drags the puck across with his left hand and leaves it stretching his body around to wrap it in around the other side of the goalie. And that image of him wrapped around the goalie, tapping it in, is what the postage stamp is. That's awesome. Well, and speaking of the World Juniors, he's got the all-time tournament record with 31 points in seven games at the 93 World Juniors. Yeah, he was absolutely nasty that year. I'm pretty sure he was on a line with uh, Marcus Naslund, and they just tore shit up. Yeah. He is another guy that's part of the uh, Triple Gold Club twice after... uh, winning the Olympic gold in 2006. Uh, he's ranked 
fourth all-time in career assists per game at .898, behind only Wayne Gretzky, your boy, Mario Lemieux, That's right. and Bobby Orr. And again, you're not going to touch those guys. The nope. fact of the matter is they played in a different era of hockey when you could just freewheel and skate around out there. And if you knew how to pass the puck, you were... Yeah, you, so you were, for him to be behind only those guys, that's... That's pretty, elite, that's pretty elite company right and there. And to do it in the clutch and grab era, no less. Doesn't get any better than that. And I believe, uh, actually, after Forsberg left Colorado, I think he ended up finding his way back to Philadelphia for a couple of seasons He did, as well. yeah. He went through Nashville first, and then he ended up in uh, Philadelphia. Oh, did he go Nashville and then Philadelphia? Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. But uh, moving on from there, we got to get to a couple of Adams that they had in Colorado. Uh, we'll start with Adam Deadmar. She was born in Trail, B.C. to a Canadian father and American mother. Um, having the dual citizenship, uh, he chose to play for the U.S. in international play. To be fair, that's uh, uh, it's much easier to make that roster at that time than it was the Canadian one, and I, I don't fault him for that. He was drafted in uh, 1993, 14th overall out of the Portland Winterhawks of the WHL to the Quebec Nordiques. He was a part of their move to Colorado um, and was with them until he later moved to L.A., in uh, a part of the trade for Rob Blake. So he found a way to give even on the way out. He, he was part of the package deal for Rob Blake and Steven Reinprecht. So he was a part of the first cup in Avalanche history. Here's your fun fact of the week. His name was misspelled Dead March as opposed to Dead Marsh. Uh-huh. Um, now the, the NHL doesn't uh, fix that normally, and they actually corrected his name, crossed out the C, and put an S above it. It was the first name ever to be changed. So Interesting. That's that's pretty much all there is to know about him. He'll he'll come back a few times. He's he's clutch. He's nasty. He's dirty. He he does the hard stuff, and uh, he's a big part of the early part of this uh, this rivalry. Um, but for a guy that was around for the whole time, we have to look at Adam Foot. Uh, drafted 22nd overall in the 1989 uh, entry draft of the uh, OHL Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Uh, he was, where he was coached by legendary coach Ted Nolan. Uh, they won a J. Ross Robertson Cup and represented the OHL at the Memorial Cup together. So, I mean, he gets to start off winning. He's a winner. You know why? Because he was coached by former Red Wing Ted Nolan. <laughs> that, that would be why he's a winner. Well, see, here I was thinking it was because he played double-A hockey growing up in the Brooklyn Whippy Minor Hockey Association with uh, Keith Primo. And uh, they won oh, several Ontario. Yeah, that's a hockey player right there. Philadelphia Flyer guy, but, you know, uh, a <laughs> hockey player nonetheless. They won several Ontario Minor Hockey Association Provincial Championships together. But, uh, like I said, he went to Sault Ste. Marie after that and eventually ended up in Quebec. He was a part of the team. That is, that, that so is... he was number five, but when he got to the league, that's not there. So he gets the camp number 52 and then has some good games in it. You just ride it out. I guess. It just... Yeah, it wouldn't be my first pick, but I'm kind of with you, Tag. Fifty-two doesn't seem like a hockey number per se. Could you name another player that wore number fifty-two? No, only only in football. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't name another hockey player that. But then again, there's certain numbers that have only had one or two guys wear it. Like eighty-four has only had Guillaume Latendresse wear it. Mm-hmm. Nobody else in the league has ever worn that number. And with a name like uh, what was it? Guillaume Latendresse. Exactly. The two <laughs> go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got to get to the guy that uh, um, really is the <laughs> lifeblood of this rivalry. Uh, Pepe. Middle name Percy. 
Claude Lemieux, real rat fuck. Oh, <laughs> Patent holder of the turtle position in hockey. Do we gotta talk about this guy? We have to talk about this Jesus guy. Christ. I'm just saying, you, you thought we were gonna talk about the Red Wings for a couple hours here. No, no, you gotta talk about some of the guys you hate the most. Oh yeah, well uh, I fucking hate this sh- guy. Go on, Les. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's showbiz, baby. Let's go. Uh, he's known as one of the dirtiest and most hated players in league history. Um, during his first playoff run in 1986 in the Cup Finals against Calgary, he bit Jim Poplinski's finger during a scrum in 90, winning a Stanley Cup with the team in 1986. He was traded to the New Jersey Devils for Sylvain Thurgeon in September of 1990, where he would win his second Cup uh, in 1995, defeating the Detroit Red Wings. Didn't happen. <laughs> so Claude it's, actually it's... had 13 goals this whole season and won the Conn Smythe as the playoff MVP. Yeah, it was, it was a strike year. It didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the, the, the coming out party of playoff Claude, all right? He's real, and he can hurt you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially from behind. Oh, absolutely from yeah. behind. <laughs> so his agitating Wayne shined on his way to the Con Smythe, and he made no friends along the way, especially in the Detroit locker room. Good. Prior to the start of the 95-96 season, um, Claude Lemieux leveraged his newfound stardom from winning the Con Smythe to try and get more money out of the New Jersey Devils. And the Lou Lamarillo doesn't play that game. So he traded him to Colorado as a three-team deal where Wendell Clark uh, gets moved from Colorado to the New York Islanders. Steve Thomas gets moved from the New York Islanders to the New Jersey Devils. And Claude Lemieux ends up in Colorado. Isn't that an interesting trade? Like those three names, Claude Lemieux, Wendell Clark, Steve Thomas? And they don't make sense, right? But you've got Wendell Clark on the, the tail end of his career. He's, he's not got much to add. And he actually moves on from the New York Islanders after one season to go to Detroit. Right. He ends up back in this rivalry anyways. Well, and I mean, part of that contract dispute, like what it all stemmed from is that Lula Morello and Lemieux had a verbal agreement. Yeah. They verbally agreed to a four-year, $5.2 million deal. Yeah. Which for the time was quite a bit higher than the league average. I think it was like 730000 a year was kind of the league average. Quite a bit lower than the numbers we're used to nowadays. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, basically what it was is that he signed a faxed copy, but never the official final copy. Mm-hmm. And it ended up going through arbitration. And arbitration actually sided with the team. Uh, in this wow. wow. <laughs> e- even though he didn't sign, sign them. So that's why he was a little extra pissed and requested the trade. Sure. What's kind of funny about this is the same summer, Mike Vernon went through a similar scenario with the uh, Detroit Red Wings. He actually was faxed a contract offer prior to the Stanley Cup playoffs. He didn't sign it. And upon getting swept in the finals by the Devils, he signed it and sent it in. And they were like, no, 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 no. You don't have any leverage anymore. And that, that also went to arbitration. So it's kind of funny that both these players in the story kind of went through a similar arbitration slash contract dispute. That's wild. That's yeah. so cool. <clears throat> so Colorado would actually go on to win the Cup in 96. Um, and Claude would become the 10th player to win back-to-back Cups with different teams. Playoff Claude shined again on the way to the sweep against Florida. He was traded back to New Jersey in November of 99 for Brian Rolston. And uh, Claude would go on to win his fourth cup with the Devils that year, again playing a pivotal role as playoff Claude. He's one of only 11 players to win cups with three or more teams. He's got 80 career playoff goals, putting him ninth all time. Playoff Claude is real, like I said, and he he really can hurt you. Um, (laughs) After becoming an NHL regular in the 85-86 season, um, Percy 
was involved in 15 straight postseasons. So once he got to the to the big show, he got to the big show every time. Um, he eventually missed the, uh, the the playoffs with Phoenix in 2001, but he would go on to get to the postseason 18 different times. He played in 234 playoff games, making him the fourth most all-time. On three different occasions, he did score more goals during the playoffs than in the regular season. Uh, 85-86 in Montreal, where he played limited games with the Canadians. 94-95, a Canada Cup gold in 1987, and a World Cup silver in 1996. He finally retired in 2008 after a weird back and forth where he played in China, ended up back in the AHL, and then somehow got into some San Jose Sharks games. Um, he, he retired as one of the hate, most hated and yet somehow most respected players of his generation. There's no denying that Claude was a winner, but the way that he would do anything to win rubbed people the wrong way, and his legacy as a result of that is just of a nasty man who would do whatever he had to to win. He didn't care if he hurt somebody. Yeah, and we're going to find out here in a couple of minutes. We'll talk about a guy who came in a little bit later in uh, the, the, the uh, rivalry here, uh, Chris Drury. Uh, drafted 72nd overall in the 94 entry draft out of Boston University. Uh, this guy was an athlete, let me tell you. Former Little League World Series championship champion where he pitched a complete game five hitter, driving in two runs himself to defeat Chinese Taipei in the final. Nice. Uh, after that, he went on to Boston University where he starred and actually took home a Hobie Baker Award as the NCAA's best player. He would go on to capture the Calder Trophy as well to become the first player to ever win the Hobie Baker and the Calder Trophy. He won the Calder in 98-99, recording 44 points. Became known during his time in Colorado as a clutch performer, amassing 11 game-winning goals during a stretch of four playoff runs. Captain Joe Sackick was quoted during this period saying, You want a goal? You're in overtime? You want him. This eventually led to a legacy of one of the best clutch players in NHL history. He was eventually traded to Calgary following the 0-1-0-2 season with Stefan Yelfer, Derek Morris, Dean McCammon, and Jeff Shantz. Following that, he was traded to Buffalo in the 0-2-0-3 season, before finally signing with the Rangers in 2007, retiring in 2011. He's now a assistant GM with the uh, New York Rangers, where he also GMs their AHL team out of Connecticut, where he, of course, is from. I did like Chris Jerry, especially when he went to uh, Buffalo uh, for those few seasons after starting in 02. You know, he, he was a guy that was a, a real impact player. Um, him and Milan Hedu came in at the same time. It was tough to decide whether we wanted to talk about Milan or uh, Jerry, but to be honest with you, Jerry had a bigger impact here just incredible like i said an underrated american goal scorer got his way onto a couple of world hockey championship teams i believe he was on a couple of uh, olympic teams as well just a class act the whole way through and you talk about clutch he's kind of like that justin williams type you know if you need a goal and the biggest moment of the game he would deliver oh he, he always delivered yeah. he, he either was getting an assist or he was getting the goal the, the guy was always around pivotal points in games he cannot talk about the Colorado Avalanche and not talk about one of the more silent superstars of the era, Valery Kamensky. He moved to the NHL from the former Soviet Union in 1991, joining the Quebec Nordiques, joining the team on the move to Colorado. He actually scored the first goal in Avalanche history against Detroit in 1995. He was a Stanley Cup winner in 96 with the Avalanche. He left the Avalanche for the Rangers prior to the 99-2000 season. Uh, after that, he had short stops in Dallas. New Jersey after his stint in New York before returning to Russia in 03-04 and retiring in the 04-05 season. 
Kamensky was part of the dominant Soviet Red Army team, winning European Junior Championships in 1984, as well as the World Junior Hockey Championships in 85 and 86, before graduating to the senior circuit, where he would win World Championships in 86 and 89 and 90, finishing second in 87 and third in 91. He also won Olympic gold in Calgary in 1988, getting second in the Olympics in 98 as well in Nagano. Kamensky won five Soviet Super League Cups through his first pro days behind the Iron Curtain before coming over to the NHL and winning his Stanley Cup with Colorado in 96. He's highly respected in arenas around the world for his top-end skill play and commitment to being a team player. Kaminsky just won, and nobody has anything but great things to say about him. I couldn't find a single negative thing said about Valerie Kaminsky. I bet Jesse's got something bad to say about him. I actually don't because... <laughs> Man, he was the absolute Red Wing killer. Like, he would score goals and kind of like Drury, he was... Those big, pivotal moments. Yeah, and he would always have, like, two goals, three goals, three points. Like, he was just an absolute Red Wing killer. This man was uh, a winner at every level. Everything that I could find about him said that he was just, oh, team go for drinks, Valerie go for drinks. (laughs) Team go for dinner. Kaminsky was an ultimate team player. Everybody wanted him there. And once he was on your team, you didn't want to let him go. No. Uh, and why would you? No. But he, he went he went chasing fun, I think, more than championships. And you saw that in the teams that he went to. He didn't necessarily go to teams that were ready to win right now. They were going to be competitive, but he, he appeared to follow fun as opposed to, to winning. And it was just – he's a great hockey player and so on. That it doesn't get celebrated enough. Kind of like Yuri Hudler when he had fun the first time he was in Vegas for the NHL awards. Oh, I mean, he might have had a little too much fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he left the state without any shoes. So, I mean, what does that tell you? Yeah, that was fantastic footage. It was oh, awesome. Incredible. All right, though. We got to get the story going. We got to talk about it. Jesse, please, please, please tell me about how this rivalry started. The Colorado Avalanche and the Detroit Red Wings was on October 6th of 1995. Colorado defeats Detroit 3-2 in the Avalanche's debut as Valerie Kamensky, a.k.a. the Red Wing Killer, would score the game-winning goal with just under four minutes left in the third period as he bursted right by both Nicholas Lidstrom and Greg Johnson, assisted by Claude Lemieux and UA Krupp. Krupp would actually end up hurting his left knee on the play as he and Detroit right winger Martin LaPointe got tangled up near the boards in the Colorado end. And that, that's a big loss for Colorado for a period of time, especially in their opening season. UA Krupp's a big German guy. He's a strong defender and has a big role to play for this team. Tall. Very very, uh, very good shot, too, from the blue line. Well, and I mean, this was Colorado's very first game as the Colorado Avalanche. Conveniently played against the Detroit Red Wings. Should have been the Rocky Mountain Extreme. Oh, right? <laughs> so much better. Did you uh, Did you imagine how obnoxious those jerseys would have been? Oh, if you had if you're going with that name, they got to be extreme. It's got to be just <laughs> in your face the whole time. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw the uh any footage of the first uh Colorado game, but did you notice that uh while Colorado was wearing their white jerseys, they actually had black helmets on? They did. Yes. That was kind of weird to me actually. Yeah. I'm kind of glad that they transitioned from the dark helmets to the white helmets because it just looks a lot cleaner that way yeah but it does make for some iconic pictures of burnaby joe sagic oh that's true with that black nike helmet on yeah yeah (laughs) but moving forward we have to get uh to what actually apex started i shouldn't say apex because we're a long way from the apex but what what really set this rivalry into full motion we've got the night off tensions are high 
Uh, the Avs have taken the first two games of the series. Game three gets heated, and um, you know Slava Kozlov takes a, a little bit of a cheap shot on Adam Foot. He ends up getting a. a little bit. Okay, so he takes a big sucker punch. <laughs> Sorry, I just kind of clued into where we were at with this, and I'm like, you know what? No, God, it was Pepe being Pepe, and and he really earned that middle name Percy right there. Um, <laughs> you gotta so, keep bringing that back around. Uh, yeah, I think it's hilarious that Claude Percy Lemieux played in the NHL. <laughs> I think he should have just dropped uh, the Claude and kept Percy. We got Chris Draper, kind of backpedaling in front of the Detroit bench, and Claude Lemieux takes it upon himself to. Uh, make sure he finishes his check now devil's advocate here I don't agree with the hit just want to make that clear Jesse don't jump down my throat here why are you going down this road I gotta I gotta do it I gotta do it okay let's hear it out Lemieux made a dirty hit Draper left nothing but his back to hit Draper left himself open to a bad situation you gotta take some responsibility for it not Broken orbital bone, broken Not jaw, all of it, but part broken, of it. broken nose, broken jaw. We six months of recovery time for Chris Draper. Nothing so, gives him that time back. So Lemieux ends up hitting Draper from behind, right in front of the bench. Draper ends up basically racking his head off the upper part of the boards. Half of his face melts. Pretty much. So he ends up with a broken jaw, fractured cheekbone, broken nose, damage to his orbital bone five teeth that are pushed back. Lemieux was ejected for the game, and the Red Wings would obviously get a five-minute power play. But, uh, you know, with him, this is only one game back after that suspension we just talked about, too. Crazy enough, he only gets two games for this. That's insane. Yep. So he obviously got two games for this in the finals, which uh, proves not to matter, but we'll get to that. we'll, We'll get there when we get there. So continuing forward, I mean, th- this was just the the, the, the spark yeah. in- into what actually turned out to be quite a good game. Yeah. So, I mean, 424 left in the first, Paul Coffey of Detroit would score a sh- from a big shot from the point uh, on that subsequent power play to tie the game 1-1. But the second period would uh, not prove to be so uh, nice for Detroit. Patrick Waugh stood on his lips, by the way, in the second and third period of this game. Yeah, he kept them in this game. Yeah. And Colorado would go on to score three more times in the second period en route to clinching the series and advancing to the finals against Florida, where they would sweep the Panthers for their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Two games without Claude Lemieux in that series as well. Ten days from the hit to Claude Lemieux lifting the Stanley Cup trophy. That's got to taste sour in the mouth of uh, Detroit Red Wings everywhere. Oh, it did? Yeah. One of the best quotes that I've ever seen comes out of Dino Cicerelli out of Game 6. The full-on quote is actually, I can't believe I shook that guy, that friggin' guy's hand after the game. That pisses me right off. It tells you everything you need to know about Claude Lemieux. And also hockey players. Well, a lot of the Detroit players actually didn't know the extent of the injuries at the time. They didn't, none of them had seen Draper None of them got to see him until after the game. He was still being worked on by the medical team and all that stuff. So they didn't quite know the extent of how nasty of a hit it really was. And I, I really believe it didn't sit well with them that they didn't have an opportunity because they're in a do-or-die game. You can't take retribution in that moment. You have to play the game to try and win, and, and you can't take that retribution. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a couple more quotes that came out after the game that really kind of uh, 
solidify this rivalry that honestly uh, kind of summarized the types of players that were involved in this situation. So, I mean, after the game, Lemieux actually was quoted to I'm no, a former Smythe winner. Nobody can touch me. I'm above them. I wouldn't try to hurt him. You know, I'm above him. I will. And, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. And I would try to hurt. If I was going to try to hurt somebody, why would I not try to hurt Sergey Fedorov or Steve Eisenman, someone that can actually hurt me? You know, Kirk Maltby can't actually hurt me. And um, I, I think that you'll probably be the first person to say this, but Kirk Maltby, much like Playoff Claude, is real, and he can't hurt you. He can. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one more quote from that night. Uh, Darren McCarty was actually quoted um, not, not from that night, but a few days later, uh, saying, when I saw Chris in the hospital that night, I told him I would take care of Lemieux. I just didn't know when. But as my uncle once told me, sometimes the anticipation of death is worse than death itself. Oh, that's cold. Oh, man, Darren McCarty is a cold, hard man. <laughs> you wouldn't have said it if he didn't mean it. Absolutely. That's, that's one thing that can be true of Darren McCarty the whole time, through his career, through his ups and downs. He may have had some... some um, drug use issues and some alcohol issues but at the end of the day Darren McCarty if he said he was going to do something for his teammates it would be done and uh, he, he definitely does take care of business well and that brings us into the next talking point absolutely and Detroit really does look for retribution December 17th the first game after 1996 um, a game where Lemieux actually didn't play due to injury tempers flared anyways and Rene Corbet of the Avalanche and Alexei Gusarov both exited the game on stretchers. Uh, Corbet with a, a concussion, Alexei Gusarov with an unknown ailment after hits from Red Wings Aaron Ward and Martin Lapointe, respectively. Adam Foote was quoted after the game as saying the Draper debt had been paid. Colorado felt that the debt was over and that there was no need for further retribution. And in the next game after that, also in Colorado, Lemieux played, and the only extracurricular action was a small skirmish with nothing coming of it. The debt seemed to be over, the rivalry seemed to be under the rug, and no further issues seemed to be going. Lemieux being quoted after the game as saying the show was over. However, we land 1997, March 26. Fight night at the Joe, baby. Here we are. We are at the point. I am excited. My heart is beating quickly. And I'm telling you, I am excited for this game. This so is going to be so. 80% of the fucking oh, podcast. Oh, man, I am pumped. This is it. <laughs> We all have so much. My favorite star of this whole series, Valerie Kamensky, ends up putting the halves on first real early in the game on quite a nice goal. Right after, like we're talking a minute, minute 15 after, Brett Severn fights uh, Jamie Pusher in a way to try and kind of break that tension between the teams. A couple minutes after that, though, it, it gets ramped right back up. Vladimir Konstantinov takes a shot from behind, falls forward, uh, and ends up clipping... Peter Forsberg in the face with his skate. Not intentional. Not Constantino's fault. Forsberg doesn't care. Accidents happen. Yeah, but it, Forsberg doesn't care. Yeah. He just took a skate to the face. Fuck this guy. You know? I'm pissed off now. <laughs> this game has numerous incidents where it just ramps up, ramps up, ramps up until it, it finally explodes. So uh, about three and a half minutes after uh Forsberg takes the accidental skate from Konstantinov. Kirk Maltby and Rene Corbet get into it after the whistle. Um, Maltby was the guy that um, kind of bounced Corbet into the hit from Aaron Ward and uh, sent him into the stretcher. And those two boys get into it. No fighting majors, but they tackle each other to the ice. Again, the emotions are ramping up. People are pissed. 
and now we're at the point where uh, Peter Forsberg hits Igor Larionov just inside the Detroit blue line, and uh, they Forsberg gives him an extra shot. Larionov is not a pushover. He is a tough Russian. He gets up, and he pops Forsberg back. And Peter Forsberg is a tough Swede. Exactly. He's a big, tough Swede, man. He, yeah. he ain't going to back down from nobody. He likes contact. He's not a classic European. This guy plays. Yeah. I, and I don't mean that about all Europeans, but at that time... We don't want anybody was... uh, thinking we're a bunch of Don Cherry supporters with no, the visor no. comments and all the, that kind of stuff. There was a period of time where when Europeans came over, unfortunately, uh, you know, Alex Kovalev getting the slap from Glenn Murray on the way by with the fake you know, shaking a hand, trying to get him to call a penalty. Like, that's the image that, you know, we as Canadians had of Europeans. But Forsberg did not fit that image. That guy played hard. He got to the hard places, and, and he did the work. But while this is going on, a linesman, a very smart linesman, grabs a hold of Darren McCarty because Claude Lemieux is on the ice. He is doing everything he can to hold on to Darren McCarty. Darren McCarty gets loose and pops Claude Lemieux. Gives him an absolute rock. Sends Lemieux to the ice. Sends McCarty flying. It's that signature turtle move you were talking about. He did turtle initially, (laughs) but then McCarty doesn't hit him right away. So Lemieux thinks he's okay. He goes to get up, and he goes to throw a punch, and then he realizes right away that McCarty's on him, and he goes right back to that turtle. At this point, Patrick Waugh sees this going on right around center ice. He skates up, trying to save his boy Pepe here. (laughs) Brendan Shanahan sees Waugh coming, goes to jump onto Waugh. Adam Foote grabs Brendan Shanahan. Mike Vernon's come up from his own crease. He's trying to pull Waugh out, nearly takes a skate in the head on the way by, knocks his helmet off, Waugh's helmet off. We get one of the best goalie fights of all time. Waugh and Vernon just teeing off at each other on center ice. Brendan Shanahan's fighting Adam Foote. Igor Larionov and, and Peter Forsberg are tied up. This is chaos. This is great. This is what it's all about. No one was tossed. Not a single person. Six-on-six six fight happens in the NHL, and not a single soul gets tossed from the game. Well, and it's pretty wild watching some of the footage of McCarty going after Claude because, I mean, it's pretty well documented now that he definitely threw a knee. Yeah. <laughs> you may not like no he didn't no it's not allegedly, <laughs> no, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. we're not sprinkling any allegedly on this yeah, yeah. I, I got some dust in the old uh, repertoire I might have to uh, nah, he tossed a knee <laughs> uh, uh, my monitor went out on we're that one we're all okay with it he just I'm tossed not, a knee yeah. I'm not saying I Claude hated Lemieux it deserved a knee like, <laughs> but he did it it left a massive amount of blood directly in front of the Detroit bench which led to some pretty funny footage of them you know a bunch of players and refs and all that kind of kind of trying to scrape it off with their skates it's and... in the exact same spot on the uh bench as where kirk Malpe also got hit from behind so there's a little bit of poetic justice to that as well it just same kind of blood spatter same kind of blood pool a uh, little bit more um but that's just the start of this game guys let's let, let's be honest here for a minute we're talking about two of the best teams in the league at the time these are high skill teams they just hate each other and what happens in the second period is just continuation of this physicality meets high skill. Well, and even just going back to that that whole line brawl incident, like, I mean, prior to the game, um, McCarty called Lemieux gutless, and Iserman said until someone after goes after Lemieux, the incident won't be over. So they literally foreshadowed 
what was intended. And, you know, from the Colorado perspective, they think it's over. You sent two guys to the hospital on stretchers. Yeah. And they, they, and they said that in December. Yeah. And now we're, we're in, in March. March. Yeah. Yeah. Just a few months so, later, it's, and it's Detroit, not gone. And Detroit still feels like retribution has not been meted. Oh, no. The Wings, the wings did not forget. Like, no. they didn't take Claude Lemieux's words seriously. Well, and at this And they time, should have. At the, like, during the, all this, Draper's actually on the Red Wings bench, and Mark Crawford and him are going at it over the small dividing glass between the benches. And yeah. It's, it's pretty funny to Scotty see. Scotty Bowman gets involved. I've actually seen the transcript of it. I saw it today. It's pretty funny. It's just Mark Crawford calling Scotty Bowman old repeatedly, <laughs> and Scotty Bowman telling Mark Crawford to stop standing on the bench to look so tall. Uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's a good comeback. So we get into the second period, and we are not done with the bloodbath as uh, Adam Deadmarsh and Vladimir Konstantinov get into a fight, mostly a wrestling match, but it's still a fight. Both guys getting fighting majors, and almost immediately after that, Adam Foot and Brennan Shanahan got to finish their deal from the line brawl. Mostly Foot seat belting and Shanahan landing the more serious punches, but Foot is he eats a bunch and he lands a couple on his own, but realistically fight Shanahan. Uh, following that, Sergey Fedorov flies down the ice and scores an absolute highlight reel of a goal, like I, classic, if you will, vintage Sergey Fedorov. Moving at high speed, a nice passing play, and he finishes it off. I watched this entire game. And I honestly didn't even note that because I was so wrapped up in watching all the fucking fights. Yeah. That I actually don't have a ton on the actual scoring of the game because it was 80% fights, 20% hockey. And that 20% hockey was so good. (laughs) Honestly, it was. It was one of the best games of that era. And it, it kept getting spicy from there. You know, after that, uh, Martin LaPointe and Keith Jones get into a scuffle. Yes, that Keith Jones that you see on TSN playing for the Colorado Avalanche. LaPointe follows that up with his second goal of the game, a nice power play goal, some solid passing on the uh, Avalanche power play. And line brawl number two starts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Started as a scrum in the corner. Mike Keane and Thomas Holdenstrom end up separated from the bunch a little bit out in the open. And... uh, end up going to the ground after a little bit of a scuffle. The mistake that Thomas Holmstrom makes is punching old grumpy man Mike Keane in the face while he's on the ground. Mike Keane reacts to that as you would expect an old grumpy man to react and proceeds to absolutely pound Thomas Holmstrom. Like, the refs are nowhere while he's near. he's down. He's down. Yeah. Holmstrom made the mistake of throwing three punches while he was down, and because of that, Mike Keane ends up just feeding him on the ground and it's an ass whooping it that is an old man <laughs> providing an ass whooping to a young player thomas holmstrom is tough as fuck but uh yeah he messed with the wrong guy on uh, this night y- unfortunately and you know what if he had just laid on the ground mike keen would have held him there yeah he, he's too that old to, been the end of it for yeah sure. he's too old to be having these long fights so he would have just left him down there but you popped him on the ground so he He's going to throw back. Old man Mike Keane's going to pound your face in. <laughs> That's just the old school mentality. That's Absolutely. like 80s hockey right there, you know? Absolutely. Just in retaliation. Well, and while this is all going on the, with uh, Keane and Holmstrom, uh, you got Aaron Ward and uh, oddly jerseyless uh, Severin. Brett Severin, yeah. Going Getting his it. second fight of the game in. Um, my favorite part of that fight is not actually the fight itself. It's at the end, the... Ice Mike's pick up the ref 
getting in between them and telling them the next person to throw a punch gets thrown out of the game. <laughs> and these two absolutely meat wagons of human beings, like, just standing there, like, wanting to punch each other so bad and, like, trying to fake each other out to make the other guy punch. And the ref just sitting there with a finger in both of their faces, like, I told you, one punch! <laughs> Brett! I told you, one punch, Brett! <laughs> it, it's so good it's fantastic Rene Corbet actually scores in the middle he he serves up a grinder like goal same as Martin Lapointe crashing the net getting the last stick on the pocket you gotta have those guys getting those goals at that time but then Adam Deadmarsh and Darren McCarty have the second best fight of the night past the Wavern and one it, it, it's a great yeah time. it's a good scrap yeah both these guys throwing for the fences eating shots throwing back and forth high energy it's quick you know what McCarty's gonna do he's just gonna grab the jersey and then let's let's get in a phone booth. He's let's just go. swinging, yeah. He's just. Swinging. But Adam Deadmarsh is no slouch either. I mean, no. Adam could go too. No, and it, it's too bad that um, Deadmarsh actually uh, got in as many fights as he did. Uh, he ends up having his career cut short due to concussions, and it, it's too bad because he was a real clutch player too, a guy that could perform real real high level. But he still has quite a big um, part to play in, in our story here. Uh, so after that tilt, uh, Yui Krub fights Jamie Pusher. So Pusher's got to get his second fight in. You know, obviously you've seen his buddy Brent Severin there get his second yeah, fight gotta in. Got to double so. down on that. Yeah, so he grabs the big German, expecting to have a nice pushover fight. And Krupp actually kicks his ass. Like, <laughs> big boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and Krupp is a big, strong German fella. And, and to my eye, I watched the fight today. He, he kicked his ass. Well, and you know what's really funny about this game this was Mike Knubel's very first NHL yeah. game. Yeah. What a game to come yeah. into the league. So like, he's just sitting on the bench, though, and he and he's going, so this is the NHL, huh? This is what it's like. I yeah. really hope none of these big fucks grabs me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the footage when they uh, brought up that uh, that information while watching, the game, just a young Mike Knubel just sitting on the bench looking oh, mildly stunned, intimidated. Man. Yeah, he looks stunned. Like <laughs> He's like, what What did I get dragged into? Holy like, what? Shit. This is a different kind of hockey I'm used to than I'm used to playing. So after that, Adam Denmark scores what would now definitely be considered a non-goal, but at the time, definitely a goal under the rules. It's controversial. The puck gets knocked to Mike Vernon. Mike Vernon goes to throw it up the middle. It hits his own player and goes back towards the Detroit goal as the Colorado player collides with Vernon and knocks the net off. The goal would be called off for goal interference now, but at the time, definitely a clean goal. Nick Lidstrom scores a beautiful goal from the blue line to make it 4-3 uh, late in the second period. Uh, once again, Nick Lidstrom being just Nick Lidstrom. From, again, from the blue line. I mean, yeah. that's his bread and butter right there. Yeah. So we start the third period off. My boy, Valerie Kamensky comes out, scores his third goal of the game. Gets that hat trick. Yeah, comes out. He, he's moving. He's shaking. He's being exactly what he needs to be for this team to win. Yeah, a Red Wing killer, yet again. <laughs> exactly. But Marty Lapointe, he's not ready to give up. He gets his second of the game. Larianov, also not ready to give up. He ties it up 5-5 with a wraparound that Patrick Waugh definitely wants back. He has a really hard time getting to the posts. It, it's the strangest thing. I've never seen it from any goalie from any era. He just doesn't pin on the post very well. Like with the wraparounds, when someone goes short side, he just doesn't cover that short side very well. Doesn't doesn't hug it enough. Exactly. And yeah. it, it comes up multiple times throughout this. Like big goals, goals that very much matter. 
like a tying goal in this game uh, where he doesn't get tight to the pipes. But if you get a guy with a very accurate shot that can kind of thread the needle in between the pipe and the goalie, yeah, you're going to be asking for trouble. Well, and when you leave that hole open to start with, you know, you got to get tight to the pipes, boys. Yeah, absolutely. So overtime starts. It's five-on-five five for five minutes. It's old school. We're not in this three-on-three three era that we see now. So goals are, are not as plentiful. We're looking at a tie here. And uh, Darren McCarty is not having any of that. Mr. Man over here going for the Gordie Howe hat-trick. Sends the crowd home happy on a beautiful passing play from Brendan Shanahan, Igor Larionov. McCarty's lucky to be on the ice thanks due to a line change and buries this beautiful passing play from these two high-skilled guys. But this game had everything. It had anger. It had frustration. It had violence. It had puck luck. It had high-end skill. It had skill players doing the dirty work. We're talking Steve Eiserman, Joe Sackick, finishing checks. This is the game that tells us about the rivalry of the series, and it leaves the Avs feeling like they need to send retribution. This game also had a couple milestones. It did. Uh, this was Vernon's 300th career win, which uh, obviously given the events that took place, was uh, pretty much completely overshadowed. I will say, like, uh, this game for Detroit, this was kind of like the turning point. This this gave them all the momentum heading into the playoffs for 1997. I think Detroit needed this victory because it really helped them build and bring them together as a team, and they got their swagger back. We're tough. We could score. We could do anything, and if we, you know, put it all together, we could actually go on a run here. And the game finished with a total of... 10 fights that were penalized. I mean, that whole line brawl, there was, I mean, I think McCarty got a double minor for roughing. Yeah. Like that, that should have been fighting. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's plenty of things that other extracurricular stuff that could have been called fighting. So calling it 10 total fights is probably an honest undershot. 39 penalties, 148 penalty minutes. That was the game for Detroit. That's, that's the exact game that they needed. At the end of the day, they got the job done. I mean, there was it. It was a uh, what a six game series. It was a six game yeah, series. Yeah, six game series. I mean, game one, Colorado wins a tight one, two one at home. Game two, Detroit wins a, a relatively close one, four two in Colorado. Game three, Detroit wins two one at home. Game four wasn't even fucking close. No, no, <laughs> Detroit wins six nothing at home. They won by a touchdown. And uh, game five, Colorado flips the script. And win 6 nothing at home themselves. And they won by a touchdown. And game 6, Detroit wins 3-1 at home. So, I mean, this this advanced Detroit onto the finals where they would, again, sweep the Philadelphia Flyers to win the Stanley Cup. It's the Wings' first cup in 40 years. Uh, it, it brings a championship to a championship-starved city. You can hear it in the crowd. The Joe is packed every night. It is banging Detroit sports fans when they are winning. It's hard to find a better set of sports fans. It's a hard place to win too, especially during playoff time. It, yeah, it, Detroit is 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 great sports fans. It's it's great stadiums full of history that unfortunately don't have a ton of wins unless you're the Detroit Red Wings and they lived up to the hype during this era. Fun fact about the 96-97 season, uh, this was Detroit's first year where uh, they used Hockey Town at center ice. They just You just got to remind the folks at home where Hockey Town is, and it's Detroit, Michigan. That's fair. The uh, Conn Smythe winner for this uh, playoff run was Mike Vernon. 
Look at that little bastard. <laughs> Crazy old son of a bitch. Bringing that uh, winning tradition from Calgary onto, onto the Motor yeah, City. Yeah, 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 totally. I like it. For sure. I like it. Yeah. Too, bad we could, too bad we couldn't ke- keep him after that, but, uh, uh, you know, things will fall into place eventually. Yeah, you win some, you lose most. That's what they say. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So looking at the 97-98 season, the first time these two teams met on November 11th, Claude Lemieux and Darren McCarty finally just had it out. Honestly, really good fight. Glad these guys got it done. Cardi's helmet gets popped off. He's talking to him the whole time. Great tilt. I love the uh, exchange, like, right before the puck drops. McCarty's talking to Claude Lemieux, and Claude Lemieux is just nodding his head like, okay, okay, you, you want to go? Okay. As soon as this puck's dropping, I'm dropping my gloves. You better drop your gloves, too. He doesn't waste any time. And they, they have a high-energy fight. I think the intention was really to try and settle the bad blood. It didn't. It did not at all. <laughs> things just, it just kept made, on rolling. It just made things worse. <laughs> Which moves us along to April, April 1st. April Fool's Day, 1998. Well, we might as well go back to the scene of the crime. Only this time, it's Chris Osgood that is in net for the Red Wings. With the Red Wings up 2-0 with 7-11 left in the third period, a scrum happens at the Colorado Blue Line up against the boards. But while everybody is preoccupied with one another, Patrick Waugh comes out of the net towards the pack to help out a teammate that is being smothered to the ice by Red Wing defenseman Aaron Ward. When Waugh takes a glance down at the other end, here comes Osgood out of his net to even the odds. Waugh sees this and gives a little come-on sign to Osgood while being restrained by a referee. After a few seconds, the ref lets Waugh go to finally tangle with Osgood. The two start outside of center ice and eventually work their way smack dab in the middle. The sold-out crowd at Joe Louis Arena comes unglued as the Stanley Cup winning goalies go toe-to-toe in a very spirited affair. For the second year in a row, Patrick Waugh gets taken down by a Red Wing goalie. Afterwards, Waugh skates off the ice, but not before he puts his hand up in front of the Detroit crowd as if he had won the fight. To no one's surprise, out come the Boo Birds. The referees weren't so forgiving this time around. Waugh and Osgood would both receive minor, major, misconduct, and game misconduct penalties for their actions. It's almost like the league told them they had to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think they learned their lesson from last time, not kicking anybody out. Yeah. So I think this time around, they're just like, all right, if the same thing happens again, we got to be a little less lenient. Are you trying to... Uh, I'll, give, you... I'll give the Vernon fight... To Walt. Or, sorry, I'll give the Vernon fight to Vernon. But, but if through the middle of that strap. You guys can't I, see it, but Jessing's nodding along. <laughs> he, he's dead inside, but he's nodding. <laughs> you, got, you guys aren't wrong. All I said was, for the second year in a row, Patrick Waugh got taken down by Detroit Red Wings yeah, goalie. Yeah, I'm trying to paint the picture. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> this kind of points a little bit to how Waugh thinks of the game. He didn't necessarily need to fight Osgood. The rivalry itself had somewhat simmered through the year. After the Lemieux and McCarty fight, there really wasn't a need for this. But the Colorado Avalanche were not playing well. And they're looking at the playoffs. They're on their way in, and they need to get a spark to try and bring the team up. I believe that Patrick Waugh was thinking big picture and was trying to get this going to get the team fired up. It's April 1st, April 8th, April 9th is the start of the postseason. To me, it's brilliant. He's doing his best to try and get his team going. He doesn't think he's going to lose to Osgood. He doesn't think he's going to break his hand. He thinks he can get the helmet off. You know, to me, 
it's a pretty smart move. It doesn't work, mm-hmm. but it's a pretty smart move from a guy that you just think of being emotional and off the handle. To me, it shows someone that's thinking bigger picture. You bring up a very good point, too, because I think what Wa tried to do on this night is exactly what Detroit tried to do and successfully did the year prior as well. Give that team a spark before he headed into the playoffs, like you said, April 9th or April yeah. 10th or whatever. Unfortunately, in this uh, point, the, the Patrick Wa was not able to galvanize his team. And looking at 1998, Detroit wins their second of back-to-back cups. The Avs failed to make it out of the first round. Yeah, they lost to the Edmonton Oilers in the first round. So, un- unfortunately, there's not a lot for us to talk about in regards to the playoffs because they didn't meet each other. But Detroit is so good, they absolutely roll. Jesse, wouldn't you say so? Uh, they would roll like the momentum was with them, but three of the first four games against the Washington Capitals, they were all one-score games. Yeah, but they swept them. They swept them, but, <laughs> but I mean, Washington was... You know, it's not like they were, you know, being dominated in this series. In fact, in game two, uh, Washington was up four to two with about eight or nine minutes left in the third period, and Detroit just had a furious comeback. I think from there, after the game two win by Detroit, they just never looked back. They want to close game three and then eventually wrap things up at the MCI Center with a four one victory in game four. And the Collins my winner this this year, none other than Steve Eisman. My guy, the Stevie captain. Y. I love it. Who would have thought? <laughs> Definitely earned it. Well, he did have a he did have a pretty good playoffs that year. Moving along, the very next year, the teams meet in the Western Conference semifinals. 98-99, and Game 1 starts off hot with Claude Lemieux ripping off Draper's helmet at the opening faceoff. Truculence is to follow, you would assume, right? You know, you're thinking, no, the, these guys are here to play hockey. These guys are here to show us why exactly we believe the Colorado Avalanche and the Detroit Red Wings are the two best teams in the league. And Steve Eiserman scores first on a two-man advantage. Wah, actually tight to the post like we were talking about earlier, really hugging it. Stevie Y is just perfect picking say, that top shelf. I was actually going to mention this goal when you were talking about him not being so great on the short side, not hugging that post so well. Because, I mean, this this shot basically goes right between his elbow and his body, right it, up. It's perfect. It, like, it's a perfect shot. Beautiful location. Stevie Eiserman just being Steve Eiserman, picking an absolutely like perfect shot, starting in net for Detroit. Uh, Chris Osgood hurt his knee in the last game of the previous series against Anaheim. And... The old man is somehow standing on his head. He's, a, he's one of the last stand-up goalies still in the league. Yeah, he is. I mean, it's definitely a step down from uh, Chris Osgood, obviously. But you know what? For the most part, I thought Billy did a pretty good job in games one and two. I thought he actually did not too shabby. Well, Theron Fleury scores for Colorado to tie the game. <laughs> um, Adam Foote then sends a bomb, and Adam Deadmarsh deflects it home. Nice play at the front of the net. Adam Deadmarsh again. High skill play in front of the net. It's 2-1 Colorado. Claude Lemieux and Alf Samuelson then have a confrontation. I can only assume they were arguing over who could be a bigger piece of shit. My money's on (laughs) Alf Samuelson. (laughs) Alf Samuelson, I remember that guy. That guy's a monster. Listen, he's a former Pittsburgh Penguin, and I shouldn't be talking shit about him, but he ruined Cam Neely's career, and I loved Cam Neely. I did too, actually. Olf Samuelson's a gigantic piece of shit as a <laughs> hockey player. He's probably a very nice person, but as a hockey player, big piece of shit. Um, both teams had a 5-on-3 in the first. Uh, both teams capitalized on that 5-on-3. Um, 
It's 2-1 Colorado after one. Claude Lemieux believes he scores on the power play, but it's waved off on a hand pass. Real quick play, bang, bang. Ranford is continuing to play well, keeping Detroit in the game. Colorado's got the pressure up. They're doing their best. It's a lot of high-speed, high-skill counterattacking play. Um, Slava Kozlov scores on Detroit's sixth power play of the game, tying the game up 2-2. Shanahan here gets absolutely clobbered by Forsberg. It's pretty clear to see from watching the, the hit still from behind. It still draws blood. Peter Forsberg earns the five and a game for the hit from behind. And it's a nasty cut, too, on that right elbow or uh, on that uh, right eyebrow. It is. Brendan Shanahan does return to the game, but this is about midway through the first period when this happens, and he doesn't return until five, pardon me, eight minutes left in the third period. Um, it's 2 2 after two. Detroit takes over the game in the third, again with their high flying system, seeming to overwhelm Colorado. Waugh has been standing on his head, though. He's playing incredibly well. We get to about the 10-minute mark in the third period, and Darren McCarty clobbers Claude Lemieux from behind. Carbon copy of the hit of Peter Forsberg on Brennan Shanahan. Only difference is Claude Lemieux doesn't draw any blood, and it's pretty clear that he saw the hit coming the whole time and squashed himself against the glass. So... Um, just to be perfectly clear how I feel about this, Claude Lemieux faked an injury to get a five-minute major penalty for Darren McCarty. Brendan Shanahan actually got hurt. Claude Lemieux's a giant piece of shit. That's good analysis right there. Yeah, I bet you believe that. Yeah, it, well, you said it. <laughs> but it worked. McCarty's kicked from the game. Bill Ranford continues to play way above his age and skill level. Uh, he is standing on his head. Honestly, through these first two games, he is Detroit's savior. Shanahan returns with about nine minutes left in the third, but the third still ends tied at two. Uh, OT starts. I did write down a note that the broadcast team um, said that Detroit lost zero overtime games this season, either all games ending in wins or ties. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. 82-game season and yeah. they don't lose no overtime, overtime losses. And, Amazing. You know, to, to make a callback from earlier, Darren McCarty, Pass across, Draper. Pass across, Kirk Malpy, OT winner. Woo! Detroit takes the game 3-2 in overtime. Great game. And Malpy is ecstatic, too. He's, like, doing a little skip as he's yeah. uh, as he scores the game. Fourth line which... comes to hurt you because Kirk Malpy can, in fact, hurt you. He can. He can. <laughs> <laughs> game two, Eisenman opens the scoring on a nice play from Fedorov and Shanahan. Good passing. one nothing Detroit at the end of one. Early in the second, Chelios sends one on net. Looks like Slava Kozlov gets a stick on it and it might go in. Patrick Waugh makes one of the weirdest saves I've ever seen. Kind of swings his glove from behind the line forward and hits the puck into the post and bounces out. It, I call it a miracle. Play gets reviewed. No goal. Eisenman gets a second of the game after that, though, from the slot. He's not to be denied. 2 nothing Detroit at the end of two. Ranford making his second start of the series, continues to play well. Nick Lidstrom scores another one from the point, of course, making it 3-0 late in the third. Lidstrom looks to score his second of the night, but it goes off Wendell Clark, 4-0 Detroit. Wendell Clark, huge callback from way back, scoring a goal for Detroit. So, at this time, both teams still have some pretty nasty players on their roster. And Dale Hunter is one for Colorado, and he takes a huge run at Bill Ranford outside the crease. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. Bill Ranford takes a run back at him, and the refs save Bill Ranford's life. 
Because <laughs> Dale Hunter had both hands on him. I believe these two were uh, former teammates in Washington, too. They were. If I'm not mistaken. They were. Yeah. So the Wings end up winning the game. Uh, they go up 2 nothing in the series. We're heading into game three, and uh, we're five seconds in. Chris Draper absolutely launches Milan Hayduk into the Colorado bench. Huge hit right off the start of the game. You got to set the tone, baby. Oh, the fourth line started every single game of this series for Detroit. Kirk Maltby, Chris Draper, Darren McCarty. The grind line. Every single game starts every game. We're, we're, we're sending the sauce. We want you to eat this hot sauce right off the hop. Right. Yeah. We're bringing the heat. Bill Ranford continuing to stand tall in the first period. He's doing his best. Steve Eiserman helps him out, opens the scoring once again. one nothing Detroit. The Wings look like they're controlling the game. Colorado ends up working their way into a five-on-three with a cross-checking call in front of the net. Claude Lemieux, of course, scores on that power play. Somebody hit this motherfucker. <laughs> They've tried. Yeah, he keeps coming back. He's like the Terminator, man. You know, a, a guy that we didn't give enough attention to was Sandus Lynch. Unbelievably high-skilled. Rewatching this games, I know that we should have spent a little bit more time with him. He sends an absolute bomb on net. And Flaherty taps in the rebound, making it 2-1 Colorado. Momentum is fully swung in Colorado's way here at the end of the first period. Bill Ranford looks a little bit shocked. Looks like he's not really all that comfortable. And... Coming into the second period, Dale Hunter sends a what I would best describe as a muffin. A muffin. A muffin towards Bill Ranford, and it handcuffs him and goes in. And it's Bill Ranford's first bad goal of the series. And from that point forward, that guy crumbled. There was nothing left of the confident Bill Ranford that you saw in games one through three. He's gone. Chris Jury in his rookie season sends a broken play home. It's 4-1 Colorado. Aaron Miller sends another muffin towards the net. 5-1 Colorado. Ranford gets pulled for Norm Miracle. But Thomas Holmstrom does get one back for Colorado. sorry, what was the backup's name at the time? Uh, Norm Miracle. Did it happen? It did not. Okay. No, uh, there'll be no miracle on ice here tonight. <laughs> no. But Holmstrom does tip one home. I was telling these guys off air about a goal of uh, Thomas Holmstrom where he gets cross-checked by Adam Foote. He's completely horizontal to the ice and still has the body control to get his stick across his body to tip the puck in. Goes top shelf. Uh, it's a beautiful goal at the end of the second. Detroit's controlling play again, coming out of the second uh, intermission. Patrick Waugh, though, is standing. He, he's standing on his head. He's playing really, really well. Slava Kozlov does beat him with an absolute bomb. After the goal, though, Martin Lapointe gets into it with Adam Foote. Both players get assessed, roughing minors. End of the game, 5-3 Colorado. Uh, this was the standout game, in my opinion, of the series, was um, Patrick Waugh in Game 3 making 44 saves on 44 shots. Like you said, just standing on his head. Yeah. Just incredible. He dominated through the second and third period, and Colorado just had to keep scoring goals to keep them ahead, and that's exactly what they did. Heading into game four, Bill Ranford gets the call again. Chris Osgood's still injured. He's not ready. It doesn't bode well when Chris Drury scores two minutes in. Bill Ranford, though, actually recovers nicely and shuts the door for the remainder of the first period where Colorado's pressuring hard. one nothing Colorado after one. In the second period, Colorado continues to push play, and Adam Deadmarsh puts in a rebound off the Chris Drury shot. Chris Drury in his rookie season immediately making an impact. Milan Hayduk, another rookie, scores off the great individual effort. Peter Forsberg below the goal line fighting off a player to send the pass out in front. It's 3-0 Colorado. Ranford pulled for the second straight game in favor of Norm Miracle. To be honest with you, Ranford was playing well. 
You I, thought so? I thought so. I, I thought that it didn't matter if Norm Miracle was the net or Bill Ranford was the net. All three of those goals were going in. But like you said, games three and four, he just started to crumble. At, probably from that uh, first shot that sent, was it? That's yeah, the Dale Hunter goal. The Dale Hunter goal, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of where you know the wheels started falling off for Bill Ranford in this one. So starting into the second Peter uh, in the second period here, Peter Forsberg tr- actually tricks Norm Miracle with a pretty nifty backhand shot, and it's for nothing. Again, I don't think Norm Miracle or Bill Ranford stops this shot. It's a nice goal. Maybe not even Terry Sawchuk. <laughs> Colorado was just coming, man. Yes, they were. Yeah, they just turned on the Jets and showed absolutely no mercy. Valerie Kaminsky continued to pour it on, scoring to make it 5 nothing Colorado. Law, of course, cannot stick to his posts, and Slava Kozlov scores from below the goal line to make it 5-1 Colorado. Adam Deadmarsh, though, gets a second of the game, again off the stick of Chris Jury. It's 6-1 Colorado. Slava Kozlov does fire home a really nice snapshot, and it's 6-2 Colorado. Law, of course, outduels Fleury's Ranford again. And at the end of the game, Slava Kozlov sets off a line brawl after taking a swipe at Adam Deadmarsh. <laughs> we, we needed a little momentum heading into game five here. No penalties were assessed, and both players just showed up for the next game perfectly fine. It, it was wild. So Chris Osgood actually gets the start for game five for Detroit. He's back. He's clearly not 100%. Yeah, you could see it in the uh, warm-ups too. Like they were taking footage of him uh, for the... For the for the warm ups and yeah he couldn't really he couldn't really put any pressure on that knee and you could tell it was bothering him yeah but obviously they really didn't have a lot of confidence in Ranford after the last two games you know two straight games with your starting goalie getting pulled you can't have a lot of confidence in that so you start grasping at straws to an extent to hey okay if that knee's good enough you think you can play all right kid you're in. So the problem is he hasn't played in a few days. And uh, little-known fourth-liner Jeff Odgers actually sends a muffin towards the net that deflects off Ulf Samuelson. Once again, huge piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> On the way to the net, and it tricks Osgood. Colorado goes up one nothing. It's the only goal in the first period, and it was a physical first period. These guys were playing strong defensive hockey with this high-flying style. It was, it was great back and forth both ways. Wah hasn't necessarily needed to be great for the last two games, but he's made some solid saves along the way. This game really is where he takes over, I think, the series. Forsberg feeds Deadmarsh fresh out of the... Forsberg steps out of the box, gets a pass, feeds Deadmarsh, breaking through the blue line. Beautiful, beautiful breakaway goal. Deadmarsh freezes Osgood with a fake shot and then sends it 5-hole. Colorado's up 2 nothing. Peter Forsberg then continues to be an elite hockey player and picks Cheddar on a beautiful passing play on the power play. It's 3-0 Colorado. Picks Cheddar. I like that. Yeah. Shanahan gets a breakaway. He misses high and wide, kind of just to show what was going on for Detroit that day. Wah plays absolutely out of his mind in the second period. It's 3-0 Colorado after two. That pretty much summarized the game, no? Yeah. Yeah, Wah ends up getting his 12th career shutout in this game, and, and that's pretty much the end of it. 12th career playoff shutout, I assume? Sorry, yes. 12th career playoff shutout. I was going to say, I assume he's got more shutouts by then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, game six, Osgood's back in net. He looks much healthier than he did in the previous game. He's bouncing back up. Doesn't matter. Uh, Valerie Kamensky slides a beautiful pass to Peter Forsberg, and it's one nothing Colorado. 
shortly after, Milan Hayduk deflects a Aaron Miller shot that kind of is a seeing eye puck, and it's 2-0 Colorado. Chris Jury wastes no time getting in on the action. It's 3-0 uh, Colorado just uh, 36 seconds later. The Red Wings call a timeout. They're trying to regroup. They're trying to get their shit together. Got to get their poop in a group. That's right. As my grandfather once said. Yes. <laughs> Joe Sackick pokes in a shorthanded goal. It's 4 nothing Colorado. Lidstrom's not willing to give up. 4-1 Detroit. Sends in another bomb from the blue line. Todd Gill sends a prayer to the net. Fedorov gets a piece. It's 4-2. We're having a game now. Detroit's on the comeback here. Until Forsberg goes full postage stamp and outmuscles the Detroit defender on the way to the net before fooling Osgood and burying the breakaway for a 5-2 victory. Wall wins the series for Colorado. The Abs have won four straight to take this series, and they look truly dominant over Detroit. They look like they own them. Now that the game was a little more opened up and not as physical, I think... That kind of played into Colorado's hands a little bit. They could use their speed. They could use their skill. And it really, again, it worked in Colorado's favor. So props to them. And, I mean, Colorado would move on to the Western Conference Finals where they would lose to the eventual Stanley Cup winners, the Dallas Stars, in a, in a seven-game series. So, yeah. I mean, they weren't far off going to the, the finals again themselves. But, uh, you know, losing to the eventual champs, uh, I guess – lessens the sting a little bit absolutely don't be mistaken though like the colorado and dallas they had some really good games too oh yeah i mean it was a seven game series they they had some had some uh had some scraps that's for sure so after the 98 99 series uh the rivalry really starts to cool down and a big part of that is claude lemieux gets traded back to new jersey before the start of the year leads to a more high skill, and his minutes are replaced by Milan Hayduk, Chris Jury, Alex Tangay. These young high flyers are replacing that with high skill, and we don't need that kind of grit anymore. And it leads to a intense, yet not quite the same 99-2000 playoff series. Oh, no, I mean, it's, it's a new year, it's a new century, but it's the same result. Even with a healthy Chris Osgood between the pipes for the Wings, the Avs take care of Detroit for the second consecutive year with a 4-1 series win. If possible, though, I did find this series to be a little more intense than the one in 99. Guys were taking cheap shots on one another, especially in the first couple of games. In Game 4, Darren McCarty nailed Adam Foote from behind as Foote was crouching down to get the puck from the boards. Foot hit the ice and was sprawled out on the ice for what looked like a serious injury, but got up a couple seconds later holding his forehead. The physicality had always been there, but I also noticed the speed was cranked up a few more notches. For Colorado, it was the same guys that produced the previous playoff year. Sackick, Forsberg, and Drury were a real thorn in Detroit's side yet again. Patrick Waugh was sensational, topping his performance from 99. Raymond Bork, the longtime Boston Bruins defenseman, came to the Avs in a trade that saw Bork and Dave Anderchuk go to Colorado in exchange for Brian Rolston, Martin Grenier, Samuel Paulson, and a first-round draft pick. It was quite obvious Detroit had lacked the offensive firepower that they had in 97 and 98. There were also questions at the goaltender position with Chris Osgood's future in hockey town in serious doubt. So do you think that there was more cheap shots because they weren't carrying the heavies that they used to? Uh, yeah, that's possible. I mean, I, I did see, like, a couple of guys, like, especially when they were up against the boards, guys were, like, skating past one another, but they were also trying to grab their face, 
like as they skated by kind of thing. Yeah. Like gave him a little bit of a face wash. I, this is kind of that like awkward part of the NHL when um, the teams were starting to phase out enforcers and starting to replace them with uh, skilled big players. Yeah. This and, is... and some of the teams went in a very opposite direction and just went high skill uh, with losing some of the grit with, again, that Detroit Red Wings system, the five-player unit, um, kind of becoming prevalent and uh, only being stopped by that New Jersey style of the – the, the lock, right? The left wing lock. Right. So what you saw in the that 99-2000 series was teams trying to play playoff hockey. Again, this is just my opinion, but yeah, yeah. teams trying to play playoff hockey without that gritty side, but still, right, you know, or he gets beat up by a skill guy. Ugh, He's right? got nothing to win in no. that scenario. No. It, it's a lose-lose. His team doesn't get any extra momentum. You know, it's not like Max Talbot fighting uh, oh, Dan Carcillo. Dan Carcillo, yeah. And um, invigorating the, that Penguins team to win that series. But yeah, it, like, it just kind of lost a little bit of that, the, the punchy, the the dudes kissing with their fists. You know? <laughs> you have to slide that in. Colorado, again, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you're talking to, would lose in the Western Conference Finals to the Dallas Stars again. But this time, the Stars would lose in the finals to Claude Lemieux and the New Jersey Devils. Of course. Uh, Jason Arnett, Game 6, trip, tr- either double or triple overtime on Ed Belfort to wrap it up for New Jersey. Yeah. It was one of the better Stanley Cup finals of that era. Um, it, was a, it was a fun st- uh, Stanley Cup final that year, uh, Jersey and Dallas. Competitive. It led to much more competitive Stanley Cups after that. Totally. Yeah, you'd see a lot of finals go six games, seven games. As and, they should be. And that's what we kind of want as hockey fans. You just want a really long series. Exactly. So looking ahead to 2001, unfortunately, Detroit gets upset to an L.A. team uh, in the first round. No one expected this. This was seven beating two uh, in, in an era where seven didn't beat two. Uh, that just didn't happen. Colorado swept Vancouver, gets L.A. in the second round as the number one seed. Uh, L.A. pushes them to seven games. This L.A. team wasn't a joke. They were there to play for the playoffs. Uh, They just ran into uh, a 2001 Avalanche team that just featured too many Hall of Famers. They wouldn't be denied. They would not be denied. They get the Blues in the Western Conference Final. Boo. They roll over them (laughs) 4-1. When Pronger had a really good year that year, too. That's when he was maybe arguably at the time the best defenseman in the game. One of them. Yeah. One of them. Scott Niedermeyer was still in the league at that point. So, uh, to me, and Nick Lidstrom. Then Colorado beats New Jersey in the cup final. Seven games. Raymond Bork finally gets his cup. He gets to go off into the sunset. It's a great story. I don't really give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, seven-game series. Colorado beats New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, we're we're seeing a lot of familiar teams here in these uh, finals games. It seems to be uh, through this stint there was a handful of teams – that were uh, you mean before the salary cap there was teams that spent more money and were able to put together better teams and thus had a domination over the league that's crazy right? that's wild yeah it's crazy that when the salary cap showed up we stopped seeing so many dynasties in the nhl it's kind of disappointing because i miss a good dynasty but at the same time important because it's really good to have that kind of quality in the league spread out across well we did have a dynasty in the 
2010s, but I'm not going to mention it because <laughs> the gentleman sitting to my left was not a particular big fan of said dynasty. Not at all, but it's okay. We got ours. For that year in 2001, though, I was really hoping for a uh, St. Louis-Philadelphia final. And unfortunately, we got, well, not for hockey fans, but uh, we did get Martin Brodeur versus Patrick Waugh in the Stanley Cup final. I mean, you couldn't really ask for anything more than that. Yeah, you know, Arguably two of the best goalies of their generation. I, I don't think arguably. I mean, those are the two, two outside of Dominic Hasek, those are the two best goalies that we got to see play. Yeah. When we were growing up, and uh, there's no way around that. They got to go seven games. We saw two again. If we weren't talking about Colorado-Detroit, because Detroit just doesn't exist for this period of time, we'd be talking about Colorado-New Jersey in the cup finals every year, just like we talked about if they hadn't been realigned, how we would have been talking about Colorado-Detroit. Martin Broder's amazing, and they built Lou Lamoureux a little bit of great team around him. St. Louis Blues legend, Martin Broder. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> and honestly, now that I think about it, I think Patrick Waugh versus Martin Broder in the Stanley Cups. Wrapping ourselves back into that series, and hopefully wrapping it up uh, completely here, Patrick Waugh ended up being the Conn Smythe winner here in 2001 again. Moving ahead, we've got the 2002 West Final where we've got these two teams meeting again. You've got the Detroit Red Wings with the oldest roster in the league. Colorado's had a lot of turnover. They've got a young roster. They are in a point where they're looking at the salary caps coming in. They're going to have to move some of these guys. They're not necessarily sure they're going to be able to keep this team together. Detroit's on the last, you know, again, their window, their championship window is closing. Both these teams' championship windows are closing. People are getting close to retirement. So before I quickly get into probably what was bet the best skill series between these two teams. I just want to go back through what we've seen over the last few years. So them meeting in the playoffs in 96, Colorado wins 4-2. to 97, Detroit wins 4-2. to They don't meet in 98. 99, Colorado wins 4-2. to In 2000, Colorado wins 4-1. to Colorado's dominated them in the playoffs. To be this rivalry really, like I said earlier, has evolved from the violent end of it to what was now a high-end skill showcase of what money can buy in Detroit and what good scouting brings you in Colorado. And we saw one of the most highly anticipated showdowns that anyone could have imagined over that period of time. It's a great series. Great series. Both teams showing respect to each other leading up to the games. League-wide, this was something that everybody was watching. It was deemed the best rivalry in the sport at the time. Adding a little bit more to it, Steve Eisman had been playing the entire playoffs on one leg. He's got an injured knee. Nobody knows at the time, but he's got a torn ligament in his knee. I'm not going out there with a torn ligament. That's all I know. No, but he's Stevie Y. <laughs> if it y. were me, yeah. He's Stevie Y, though. That's that's why he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I am sitting here doing the podcast with you, fine gentlemen. <laughs> Peter Forsberg had spent a good portion of the season off recovering from injuries uh, because of his big body, because of the way that he played physically. He beat himself up, and yeah. so he had to take a break, had to heal his body. He ends up coming back just before the start of playoffs, leading to this absolutely and hugely anticipated game one where Sackick opens the scoring. Waugh is absolutely standing on his head. You're, you're looking at a vintage Colorado Avalanche game. 
but Dominic Hasek is in net on the other side. And late in the first period, like, I'm talking completely knocked out. No penalty on the play. Oof. Man, the 2000s were a different time. Yeah, they were. <laughs> Not the hockey we see today, that's now, for sure. It's important to note that Adam Foote, from this knocked out process where he was definitely completely knocked out on the ice, he returned to the game. <laughs> this guy returned seven minutes later. If that hit happened in 2021, the Adam Foote's not coming back in the game. No. He's, he's not coming back for a couple of weeks. No, yeah, that too. Somebody's <laughs> looking after his brain. So Holmstrom ties it up a few minutes after that. He gets knocked down in front of the net. Somehow from his ass, still manages to deflect the fuck, as Thomas Holmstrom does. It's 1-1 after 1. Tie up at a blue line after a whistle, and Kirk Maltby throws a elbow back at Peter Forsberg. This starts another scrum. Tempers are heating up. We're getting flavors of the old rivalry. It's that old reminiscent feeling. Mm -hmm. But at this point, these teams have gone 19 playoff games without a fight. Everyone understands that at this point, uh, a fight's not going to help us. we got to play this game, and the, the rosters reflect that. And I think Detroit knew that coming in. They're just like, well, we can't beat these guys physically. We're going to have to beat them with their own skill. Yeah. So that's why they made the moves to go get Brett Hall, Luke Robitaille, Dominic Hasek. That's right. Get those old veterans going. Matthew Dandino. Matthew Dandino. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Chelios. Chris at that Chelios. Yeah. Yep. Milan Hayduk scores, makes it 2-1 Colorado. Darren McCarty tries to hit Rob Blake on a forecheck. And Rob Blake absolutely crushes him. He saw him coming and gives him the old, you know, back hit. The old reverse check. That's yeah. right, yeah. McCarty briefly leaves. It appears to be a shoulder injury. Uh, knowing McCarty from his Calgary days where he missed quite a few games with shoulder injuries, I would imagine that his shoulder popped out and that he just left the game to get it popped back in. Yikes. The low slot, just out of the reach of the defender. Forsberg looks like he takes a shot, ends up being a pass to the middle, and Tangay deflects it in. Tangay really clicked with Forsberg and Sackick. He really lot. did. Yeah. yeah, that was a great there, line. There was great chemistry between those guys. Rob Lake absolutely hammers Brett Hall about three minutes after that at the blue line, uh, but it puts Detroit on the power play. Like It, it was a huge hit, but uh, clearly a boarding call. Well, it well-deserved. It was old guy on old guy crime. Yeah, it was old guy on old guy crime. <laughs> Wa stands tall through the power play. But boy, Devereaux beats him from the slot shortly after that to make it 1-1. The grind line for Detroit continues to disrupt the skill of Colorado and continues to keep them on their heels. But Steven Reinprick has a little bit of pressure and manages to hit the post for a shot that he'd really like to have back as there was no one around him with about three minutes left in the first. I'm telling you, he hit square on the post. You, you can't hit it more square than he did, and he did it along the ice. There was no one near him. He had probably two to three seconds to set himself and take a shot, and he would have buried if he had. And the first end's tied at one. Both goalies standing on their head. They both look great. Hashik and Wah really meeting the bill uh, of what is expected of elite goaltending. And this is a great goalie matchup, too. You have arguably two of the best goalies that's ever played the game going head-to-head in a Western Conference final. What more could you ask for? Forsberg starts the second period with a beautiful deflection. Reaches back with his skate on a shot from Sandus Ozelinch that's clearly designed. Does not kick his foot forward. Simply puts his foot out to deflect the puck towards the net. Goal stands. Beautiful 2-1 play. I imagine the Detroit Red Wings fan over there disagrees with my assessment. He doesn't look too thrilled with that. He does not look happy. Well, I'm just reading the notes here. And, uh, yeah, 
it's it's not very good analysis on your part. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are your notes. They're biased. Well, I mean, to neither, each to each his own. <laughs> neither of us give a shit about either team. So, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that maybe we have the most unbiased opinions about this. I would agree. <laughs> well, Yuri Fisher didn't agree with the referee's opinion that game, and he took his third period, third penalty of the game shortly through the second period. Wah does make a boneheaded move on the power play, though, and skates out to just past what we would call the ringette line, or the area between the top of the circles and the blue line, and tries to shoot the puck away. He gives it directly to Kurt Maltby, who proceeds to skate in and walk Patty and Barry shorthanded to tie the game at two. Yes, sir. It is one of the most iconic goals in this rivalry. The net to put them up 3-2. Detroit is still massively outplaying Colorado at this time. And you could tell, too, like they're hustling a little bit more. The urgency is there because they know they can't let Colorado get back into the series, especially in Game 2. Nick Lidstrom knows the boards of the Joe, and he takes full advantage of this, bouncing a puck off the end boards, off Patrick Waugh, and in. Patrick Waugh, hug the fucking post, man. <laughs> we were talking about this. This is earlier, a reoccurring man. thing. <laughs> it's seriously like the amount of big goals that go in because this guy can't be bothered to hug the fucking post drives me goddamn bonkers. He's one of the best goalies in the game, and he's literally just like, hey, somebody will fucking deal with it. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, Yeah, I'm noticing a trend here. Uh, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of goals scored it's this way. It's driving me bonkers. <laughs> Anyways, it's 3-3. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after that, Colorado's trying to get some momentum back, and Rob Blake nearly kills Darren McCarty with about four and a half left. It's a clean hit by yesterday's standards or today. McCarty turns shoulder to shoulder, stick on the puck. He just gets blown up. It's a great hit. Game's off to overtime, though. Detroit carrying the momentum. Adam Foote and Darren McCarty, old Warriors, get into it again. Don't quite drop the gloves. That nastiness is You know there. they want to. But there's too much on the line here. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be you can't be fighting here. So young Chris Jury, three of his five playoff goals against Detroit have been game winning goals. Well you might as well make that four for six, because Captain Clutch shows up again with a nasty toe drag from the slot and buries one. Here's my question. How does Colorado end up with two uh, Valerie Klemenskis or Kamenskis? I, I have no idea. How does that happen? I, 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 I got nothing for you. <laughs> they just good drafting, good scouting. I don't know. Yeah, why can't we get that? Oh man, because it beautiful goal. Almost immediately after the goal goes in, Chris Chelios decides it is time for me to beat the shit out of Darius Casparitis. And while we all may agree with what Chris Chelios has done, it wasn't the time for it. <laughs> no, but the game does end with the two of them getting a fighting major, which is the first fighting majors in twenty-one games for these two teams in the playoffs. That's amazing. And it ends after the end of the game. Yeah. Thanks, Chris Chelios. <laughs> <laughs> barely counts. God, I was you know what? I wasn't really the biggest Chelios fan, but he's kind of one of those guys that you love having on your team. I'm yeah, sorry, you never sure. want to play against him. No, but he's but. definitely the guy that you want on your team, though. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So looking at game three, Sackick scores on the power play late in the first to take the lead. Goaltending really is shining brightly at this point as Patrick Waugh's butterfly is standing its ground and whatever chaos that is working for Dominic Hasek at the other end is just so game four was a vintage Colorado Detroit Red Wings game physical fast skilled nail biting 
Ryan Preck scores. Steven Ryan Preck scores eight minutes in on a rebound off a Rob Blake shot for Colorado. But Hashik continues to stand on his head as he gets peppered with shots. Final shot count at the end of the period is 21-4 for Colorado. Holy. Hasek stood on his head. Oh. That sounds like an understatement. Yeah. Any other goalie, it's probably over. Yeah. Honestly? Yeah. Maybe, unless you got like Carey Price in that or... Carey Price. <laughs> <laughs> but you but you got the Dominator in there, man. And he's doing the job. He's di- he's getting it done. So the first period ends, Colorado up one nothing. Fedorov scores shorthanded in the second to tie the game up 1-1. Now, the fun thing about Detroit, especially at this time, is Sergei Fedorov, Steve Eisenman, Brennan Shanahan, um, Luke Robitaille, Igor Larionov, they're expected to play the penalty kill. So the speed of these guys got them nine shorthanded goals that season. Amazing. I for, for other teams it's just like yeah, they got four guys on the ice but it feels like they have five even though cuz they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Nick Lidstrom's one of those guys too. Yeah. So good luck. So I, shortly after the goal that ties it up, Darren McCarty kind of gets into a scrum with Rob Blake and tries to goad him into a fight. And you can see on his face, Rob Blake is not having any of it. I'm not taking that trade off. Come on, get real, buddy. <laughs> get out of my face. Yeah, McCarty's trying to go, you know, they're kind of hooking that's up a, these last couple of games It's a great trade off for him too, right? You yeah. know, he's a fourth line guy. He's taking out a number one center or a number one defenseman. Yeah. But speaking of number one centers, Steve Eisenman's continuing to look like an absolute robot out there. The fact that he's playing on one knee, he's making an impact on every play. He's still over a point a game. It's unbelievable. He's still working hard. With a torn ligament in his knee? It's incredible. Detroit turns up the heat through the second period, but it still ends tied 1-1. Sackick scores a classic Burnaby Joe snapshot just over the pad, out of the reach of the blocker, like just over the toe. It's vintage. This is what Joe Sackick does. He's just stepped over the blue line. He fires an absolute rocket of a snapshot into a perfect spot. The goalie can't reach it. No goalie in the world makes that save. Man, it's hard to it's hard to stop that shot of his. The snapshot, wrist shot. Incredible. Nobody mastered it more beautifully than he did. Just the best. Yes. Colorado takes momentum from that. They start to dominate. That killer instinct seems to be back ingrained in this now younger team. You know, the the return of the Valerie Kamensky types. Like, they don't have those guys anymore. So that killer instinct has to be reborn, and it seems like it's back in this team. Uh, shortly uh, after that, uh, something hilarious happens, and Thomas Holmstrom steals Darius Kasparitis' stick and throws it into the sixth row. Goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the game's in Colorado, so Kasparitis gets his stick back. But... Hilarious, nonetheless. That's awesome. It did follow up with a lot more physical play from Detroit from there. They took over momentum late in the third as they pressed for the equalizer. However, Chris Jury, another highlight reel goal, another toe drag, makes it 3-1 late in the third. Why do you got to bring this guy up again? Because he's amazing. Like, seriously. <laughs> Little League World Series champion Chris Jury <laughs> making the Detroit Red Wings look like idiots. Brett Hall. Makes his first appearance. Does score with one second left. Of course, that means Drury gets another game-winning goal. Captain Clutch lives on. <laughs> the series is now tied at two games apiece. We're heading into game five. Steven Reinprecht once again opens up scoring, this time with a wraparound goal on Hashik. A shoulder fake just before he went around the net. Bit Hashik and 
on the way around. He got there first. Strong goaltending and strong defense has Colorado up one nothing after the first. Both these teams showing exactly why they belong in the Western Conference Finals. You couldn't have asked for a better matchup. And it's a uh, and it's the one that the fans wanted too. Like I know Dallas was there at the time, and here come the Kings were kind of on the rise at that time too. But this this is the series you wanted to see. This is what we all wanted to see. This yeah. is what we came for. The game though is a little bit more reminiscent of previous series where physical play is up. Joe Sackick finishing his checks. Brett Hall finished a check on Adam Foote and crushed him. Mm-hmm. Tell me another game where Brett Hall even has two hits. You'd probably have to go back to uh, maybe even his Calgary days if he was the Honestly, like the, the guy's a pure goal scorer. You're not asking him to finish checks, and here he is finishing checks. Yeah. It is still one nothing Colorado after two. Again, a really tight game. Iserman does score early in the third because, once again, Patrick Waugh, in your fucking leg on the post, pal. <laughs> like, I could, seriously, like... Didn't they teach you this in Montreal, it Pat? It drives me bonkers. Like, another big goal in the same series where all he has to do is pin his leg on against the post and the puck doesn't go in. But instead, he picks one short side. It's in the net. Patrick doesn't complain. It's ridiculous. Game tied at one. Hasek, goaltending god in the third period. Colorado pushes for the win, has a similar period like they had in the first of the previous game, absolutely dominates, can't get one past them. Shanahan, though, misses a wide-open net with less oh. than a minute left, putting it off the post. He should have buried. It, the guy's got the killer instinct. He's, he's hit that goal a million times, and for whatever reason, he missed. So Shanahan can't hit a wide-open net, can't score on a breakaway. Like, this is – come on, Brandon. This is getting out of hand, man. Puck goes down back the other way. Hasek freezes it. Face off in their end. 15 seconds left. Hasek goes full vintage Hasek and literally hucks his body across with hopeless abandon. Makes three saves. One of them off his head. <laughs> off to overtime we go for the third straight game in the series. Detroit dominates the early half of the overtime period, but it takes only one. And Peter Forsberg scores on a counterattack. Colorado up 3-2. At that point, I honestly thought that the series was over. Oh, yeah. I, I Colorado thought Colorado looks so good in overtime in the back half of that third period. And the series is also shifting back to Denver, too, which is not a good sign. Which takes us to a, probably your favorite game of the series, Game 6. Uh, Yeah, I would, I would say Game 6. Mostly yeah. due to one moment, but we'll get there. Yes. We will get there, we will. yeah. We will. Very quickly, actually. <laughs> but the first period is another Galaxy class showcase of Hasek and Wah. Rewatching the whole game, it was incredible to watch. These guys just stopped everything. But with 38 seconds left in the first, Patrick Wah does the most Patrick Wah thing that I can think of. And after initially absolutely robbing Steve Eisenman on a play out in front, Wah goes to throw his hand in the air to show the crowd that he has the puck. Only problem being is it wasn't in his glove. Uh, it was sitting on was top it? of his cheater. Oh. And so it dropped down, and Steve Eiserman just poked the puck into the net, and it's one nothing Detroit. Oh, you hate to see it. You don't hate to see it at all. <laughs> it couldn't have happened to a worse person, and I'm glad it happened to him. But, like, oh, how dumb do you have to be? You in were lucky playoffs. enough to make that save. <laughs> like, I know I – know, 
Pat, you're a three-time Conn Smythe winner, but, I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Like, if you're up 6-1, I can understand it, and yeah, then you let it in. But how about in fun. a 0-0 tie game where you and the goalie on the other end are showcasing what it means to be a great goalie? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just the the general intensity of, you know, these two teams meeting so many times in so many high-intensity, you know, high-importance games over the years that, you know, you get that moment where you make that huge save, and like you said, it it totally plays into Waz's ego. Absolutely, he just has to be the star of the show. Yeah, well, it came back to bite him in the ass here. Detroit up the play in the second, though, uh, the physical play, and started to take over the game. Hashik continued to stand on his head when he was called upon. He wasn't called upon too much in the second. Nah. McCarty with an absolute clap bomb, though, making it 2 nothing Detroit midway through the second. Uh, I'd like to point out at this point that seven of Darren McCarty's 20 career playoff goals have come against Patrick Walker. In period, Colorado Avalanche decide to do one of the most petty things that I can think of. I think so. And decide to measure Dominic Hasek's stick. They're checking to see if the blade is of legal measurement. Now, I found an interview of Dominic Hasek from many years after this event. And he said, I don't know why, but I decided to change my stick that day. And I decided to use the stick that was clean. Mm -hmm. So when they took my stick for measurement, I was confident because I had taken the stick that was good and not the modified one. It just worked. I mean, it kind of makes sense given how Dominic Hasek's career went and the type of player he was that he just on a whim could be some soviet spy shit though where he just decided to like leak out that he was using a modified stick and then just decided to not use that modified stick it was it was funny it was shades of the 93 cup with marty mcsorley in game two yeah where uh they measured his stick and it turned out to be illegal sending the game into overtime and the Habs won and never looked back but let me tell you why Colorado <laughs> wanted to measure that stick because they fell one nothing. They felt the momentum slipping away, so they wanted to go check the stick. Well, it's two nothing by there. Or sorry, two nothing. Yes. Yeah. Because they felt the momentum slipping away. That's why they went All right. and measured the stick. That's fair. So it's two nothing Detroit after two, um, but Hasek goes absolutely beast mode in the third. He's completely untouchable. He gets the shutout. Completely closes the door. Colorado did dominate the third, but. Hasek was just there every single time. Detroit ties the series. We're heading back to the Joe for the deciding game seven. <laughs> and for what was the ultimate letdown? What an awful game seven. Yeah, honestly. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I... Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I knew how this game seven went, and I still had to rewatch the series leading up to this because I wanted to to make sure I had all the notes proper and was able to pick up any quotes that I could. I'm just going to hammer through this real quick because it, it doesn't take much to tell you that Huff sends a bomb off the wall and beats Patrick. Honestly, really weak goal. Really, really weak goal. Was he hugging the post or not hugging the post again? He was not Could- hugging the post again, and he tried to stand up and hit it with his blocker. Because was- missed it, and then it went inside of his arm. Because once again, Patrick Waugh can't decide that he needs to be a friggin' whatever. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> We've gone over it. We can do this much faster. Robitaille scores off a beautiful lead from Larry Onoff. It's 3 nothing Detroit. 
Holmstrom scores his second of the game off the Robotai rebound, and it's 4 nothing Detroit. That's the end of the first period. The old man with the young guys line of Datsuk, Devereaux, and Hall. Hall scores. 5 nothing Detroit. Frederick Olofsson gets his second of the series, his second since 1992 on the power play because they're up so much they're putting their third and fourth liners out for the power play. It's 6 nothing Detroit. Waugh gets pulled for David Abisher. 6 nothing Detroit after two. 12-minute mark of the third. Detroit fans start singing. Na-na-na-na. Na-na-na-na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. See ya, Pat. Hit the showers. <laughs> Drury scores off of his foot. No goal, though. The refs determine it to be a kicking motion. The Detroit Red Wings win game seven. Seven nothing. And it honestly, this is the end of the rivalry. But if I'm looking at Detroit's roster for this year, I gotta be honest with you, I'm not surprised that they beat Colorado. This is probably Detroit's best roster that they've ever had. The top line of Fedorov, Iserman, and Shanahan. Your second line is Igor Larionov, Luke Robitaille, and Thomas Holmstrom. Your third line is Brett Hall, Pavel Datsuk, Boyd Devereaux. And your fourth line, as it always has been, Kirk Mulpey, Chris Draper, Darren McCarty. You're looking at the defenseman, Nick Lidstrom, arguably the best ever, with Chris Chelios, not exactly a slouch. Yuri Fisher with Matthew Dandino, Steve Duchesne, Frederick Olison. Great decor. You look in net. Dominic Hasek, arguably the best all time, with a more than serviceable, back, serviceable backup with Manny Legacy. This roster was not going to be denied on their way to winning the Stanley Cup. Yeah, they're 10th in franchise history, and they beat the Carolina Hurricanes in a 4-1 to series win. So once again, the East... Or the East really didn't put up much of a challenge for these uh, top-tier teams coming out of the West. Yeah, I think also the previous series with Carolina, they went seven games with the Toronto Maple Leafs as, as well, and I think that really took a lot out of them heading into their series with Detroit. I don't know that Detroit had much left more in the tank after having a seven-game series with Colorado. Yeah. you know, I, I, They both I, went seven series in the conference finals. It's Ardus Urbe versus Dominic Hasek, mm-hmm. and Dominic Hasek's clearly going to dominate that. Yeah, surely this was uh, Detroit's best roster, but you know what? I got a hand to Colorado. They uh, defending champs coming in. You you can't deny them. Like you can't just write them off. They took they took Detroit to the brink, especially with that three two series. Like I said, I thought after after the series went to three two back to Colorado, I thought the series was done, but. Props to Detroit. They battled back hard, won two straight, and ended up in the cup final. Just keep pumping those tires, why don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, feel good about yourself. But no, I'm giving Colorado props as well. Like, come on here. Are you not listening to me? Not really. Most of the time, no. (laughs) I can tell. So, our uh, series MVP, well, playoff MVP, Conn Smythe winner this year was Nicholas Lidstrom. Of course it was. Surprise, yes. surprise. He was the first non-North American to ever win the Conn Smythe that year. And once again, cemented his legacy as the one of, if not the best defenseman of all time. And six years later, the Red Wings would go on to win another cup, and he would be the first European captain to receive the Stanley Cup. That's correct. The legacy of this rivalry. What does it mean to the league 
what bearing does it have on the way the game is played today? What do you got? I, it's a hot burning candle that if you watched hockey in the 90s or 2000s provides nostalgia. And if you didn't watch hockey before the, you know, the early 2000s, 2010, you can go back and get a taste of what old-time hockey was. You can get on YouTube like we did and, and see this series that epitomized what the Flames and Oilers were, what the Islanders and Rangers were, what the Flyers and Penguins were. Some of these more regional rivalries. Some of the ones that you see all the time, yeah. Yep. And, and why they have such anger towards each other. These two teams just fell into being the two best teams of their era, much like Pittsburgh and Washington are now, but with more violence involved. A lot more. A lot more violence. <laughs> and, you know, in, in the same way that we as hockey fans got excited about Ovechkin and Crosby both scoring hat tricks in the same game and the penguins barely pulling out the win you know the the excitement about that hockey is the same excitement that we felt the 98 99 playoffs with the colorado avalanche and the detroit red wings that fire that burn that passion still resonates today with the today's fans and something that regardless of how much time passes you'll be able to point back on and and say this is what the NHL is. I think it was one of the best rivalries in NHL history. For as quick burning as it was, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it was a really short time frame, but fucking hell was it good. Oh, some of the hockey played was the best hockey played like, that any of us ever got to watch. It was some of the most physical. Like, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the scraps and the, the physicality of it, but the physical... Like the skill and the the play that went into these playoff series and just games in general was above and beyond everybody else in the league at the time. Like these guys went toe to toe every single time they met. And for a period of Western Conference dominance, to be the king of the castle, you had to beat one of these guys. They had to go through each other. Exactly. And yeah. and because of each other, there was no dynasty through this period. Literally because of each other. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing you got to it was the, the back-to-back wins by Detroit in, what, 96, 97? Yeah. Yep. And so, I mean, that's the closest we got. Detroit wouldn't win another until 2002. Which, I mean, in in retrospect, is a pretty short time, time frame, but not necessarily a dynasty per se. I think at the time too, like you look at Detroit and Colorado, like when Colorado first came into the league, it had been a while since a Western Conference team had won the Stanley Cup. Like the one prior to Colorado that had won from the West was the 89-90 Oilers. So in a sense, I think it gave the Western Conference a real shot in the arm. You know what I mean? Like we had Pittsburgh repeat. We had the Rangers go on that run and then Jersey the following year after that but then after that it was always it's either colorado or detroit man it's going to be one of those two teams with the occasional showing of the dallas stars yes basically yeah 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 Yeah. and dallas was up and coming at the time they had mike medano brett hall 
at Belfort and Net as the the third best team in the Western Conference behind these other two, and it was a pretty big step behind the other two. The only reason they ever got to go through was because one of these guys would lose in the earlier rounds. I, that's just my opinion. Or I mean, I mean Dallas beat Colorado back to back years in Game Go Seven. Moving along, do you guys got any uh, favorite moments throughout this whole rivalry to uh, really pinpoint here? Well, we just touched on it. It was the Game 6 Patrick Waugh save that wasn't. (laughs) That is my favorite moment. Of fucking course. Not much more needs to be said about that. Scotty Bowman yelling at Claude Lemieux with his wife and kid there. That's my favorite moment. I mean, it's too bad we don't got any video footage. I love that so much. I wish that was in today's day and age because... There'd would, be cell phones out. There'd be that guy is like like Scotty Bowman's like five three, right? Like he's a troll of a human being, and so I'm just imagining this tiny man like holding the two like bars, like the one inside the bus on the way up the stairs, and then the one on the bus door, like leaning out and like foaming at the mouth as he just like calls this man every word in the book, like throwing c bombs out there, calling him a you know a fucking everything. I, I wish I had been there. That's my favorite moment. Um, between that and Mark Crawford telling Scotty Bowman he's old and Scotty Bowman telling Mark Crawford to stop standing on the bench so much he's not that tall. Between those two, those are my two favorite moments. I think mine's got to be just as a whole, Patrick Waugh trying to fight every goalie that Detroit had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> Yeah, he did abs- also try absolutely. to fight Hasek, by the way. Just, he tried to fight Hasek. He tried Hasek, to fight Hasek twice. And when Hasek <laughs> came down, at least in one occasion there in 2002, Hasek tr- came flying down the ice and actually basically like slid through and like clipped his pads and fell over. And basically the rat, the refs uh, wrapped him up pretty quick. Yeah. But he well, fought. almost got them all, man. He almost he, got them all. Oh, he only needed to fight Ranford in the in the, uh, the playoffs, and we basically covered all of them. Oh, man, I wish he'd fought Bill Ranford. That do would have you, been so good. Do you think Pat had a list on his locker that just said every Detroit goalie I have to fight at I before I leave? I guarantee you he didn't have Norm Miracle on there because I don't think he thought of Norm Miracle as an NHL player. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did he, we yeah. two hours prior. He, he, had, he definitely had a list. Of all the starting goaltenders. Yeah. yeah. It was like that scene in Billy Madison where Steve Buscemi's character is like crossing off people not to kill yeah. afterwards. <laughs> you know, all right, not him. <laughs> all right. He's, he's good. He's good people. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I think overall that's the best we can tell the story of the Colorado Avalanche-Detroit Red Wings rivalry. Absolutely. That Those are dudes who kiss with fists. That – is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> they did it many, many a times. There were many. If you go ki- watch through all these games, there's been a lot of kissing with fists. That's true. That's very true. And we will put out some of that content on some of our social media pages for uh, you to enjoy while listening to this, hopefully. In that case, thanks for listening to this episode of Stories from the Nosebleeds. If you'd like to get involved with the program, we'd love to hear some show ideas from you. And you can do that by leaving us a suggestion for upcoming episodes on our social media pages on Facebook at Nosebleed Stories, Twitter at Nosebleed Story, or Instagram at Nosebleed Stories. Or you can email the show at showideas at nosebleedstories.com. See you next time for some more stories from the Nosebleeds. Bye! Thanks, guys.